0: I'm worried because I feel like whenever you're on the show, we always go and you're the by far the longest guest like I feel like we could go like if we ever needed to do like a charity talkathon me and you would be the two. <laughs> we can go for twelve hours and then this time we actually have a lot to talk about, so I'm a yeah. little concerned, but well, maybe we should not start moving.
1: did you hear we don't talk anymore that that you got to me and that <laughs> that somehow. It, with the specifics are, are, are kind of vague as to how, how you got to me and what that means. But somehow you got to me, and we don't talk anymore.
0: Wow. Well, uh, have people said that? Have there been further speculation that, that we're on the outs?
1: Oh, my God. I mean, fortunately, it's, it's died down in the last few days. I think people have finally moved on um, from the peace saga, which is good. The internet has a very short attention span, and that, that is both a blessing and a curse. It is, it is definitely a blessing when you are on the receiving end of it. Um, so that is nice. But uh, yeah, I heard, I, I read and got emailed and heard lots of interesting theories about the conspiracy between you and I, uh, or that that you got to me or paid me off because people couldn't possibly believe that the story was what I said it was, which is that <laughs> I didn't you, want to you, be in this business after all, so I exited it.
0: Right. You told this story on, on your podcast, The ATP, uh, Probably not what is now the last episode i 'm guessing you have an episode coming out tomorrow, but the today one from
1: last it's week already out
0: uh, uh, well, I have not listened, so um, you can stop me if we start covering same stuff but last week 's episode where you covered the peace thing you 're more or less long very a very long story, very short, is that what you wrote as always is exactly the truth you You are one of the most almost painfully honest people i 've ever met, like where you you almost can 't even bring yourself to tell like white lies. Uh, you know what I mean? It's it. If you go through something like this and then you explain yourself in public, you're what you say is the honest to God truth. Um, so it's very funny that everybody would just assume that it could be, it was something else. And I yeah. think the part, the part of the story that is the best was that, that, um, and again, it, you know, people who listened to ATP last week, know this, that you, I guess it was what last Thursday or was it Friday? Um, I don't know what day of the week it was, but I was at the dentist, and I was waiting to go, and you texted me, and you were like, I think I'm going to pull Peace from the App Store, and I texted you, don't don't do it, don't (laughs) be rash, wait, wait till I'm out of the dentist, and I got home, and it was already pulled from the App Store, and the thing was there. Um, So I literally, you did not, you know, pull a lot of people, you had kind of made up, obviously, you'd made up your mind, because... You know, I, t- I told you not to do it, which we will get to. I will explain why I thought you should not do it. But uh, it was very—it did amuse me greatly, though, then afterwards when I did notice immediately afterwards that there were an awful lot of people who assumed that it was pressure from me. Somebody somebody more or less said that it was like that me and Kudal, you know, showed up with baseball
1: bats. That I would have loved to see that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was especially funny because I was literally just hanging out with you and Kudal like four days earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, was it was interesting just, it, it, i also heard i yeah i went over this briefly into people like i heard people th- people thought that apple paid me off which is the funniest i think because like <laughs> i was making them a ton it, of money you know promoting their platform and <laughs> doing everything they wanted me to do <laughs> and it uh, wasn't
0: also it also wasn't one of those things like um uh today view widgets, right? Where they say, okay, now over here on this today screen on iOS, what's that
1: called? It doesn't on even the, matter. Know, like, well, whatever. <laughs> you know what it, but you can I think it's called a, view actually.
0: But. You can put a widget in there. Yeah. And um uh, and when they first opened this up, there were people who made things that did things that were creatively outside the the purview of what they expected people to, to make. And then, you know, so, like, I think one of the ones that was an early victim of this was, I think, uh, PCALC, the calculator, made yeah. it so you can actually do your computation over there. Well, that was more than – they kind of – I think they envisioned it as more just like a status view. Like, it would show you the weather or whatever. You know. And when people were actually doing real things over there, um, Apple, you know, reacted. This isn't that sort of – because, and it wasn't like they were uh, – breaking you know wasn't like they were using pri- private APIs they were using the public APIs in ways that Apple didn't envision well peace was not like like you you used the content blocking APIs in a way that they didn't envision it was almost like right down the middle it, the canonical this is exactly the sort of thing that they envisioned would be made
1: yeah i mean like I, I, I the the i got a couple of responses here and there from inside of apple and they were all extremely positive like they they de- they definitely did not want me to pull it from the app store as far you know based on the implication that they would have hated it for some reason like i mean you know they're they're not very generous with their communication but it it sure seemed like people in apple were big fans of it and uh and when i pulled it and placed the burden on them to try to issue all these refunds first manually and then eventually they did that batch thing um that couldn't have been pleasant for them either, and certainly couldn't have been cheap to have to process all those refunds and and you know just the the manpower alone of processing all those refunds was uh was getting to be probably significant so yeah the the idea that Apple uh paid me off to do all this it was pretty entertaining. um I also heard that uh, advertisers somehow paid me off i ah, man an app that sits at the top of the app store paid app chart if that could have sat there for like a month. I don't know if anyone else would have been able to afford to pay it off. I mean, it it was, yeah. it would have made a, t- a ton of money. Um, it, and that's you know that's assuming a lot, of course. But if you could have sat actually, there for a while, you know that would have that I would have been a good amount of money. But you know, it's it's it would have the whole reason I canceled it was that it would have felt it would have felt like making a ton of money off of like drug dealing or something like it didn't it didn't feel right. You know that was the whole point.
0: I am looking right now. I actually have not been paying attention. Uh, to see what is atop the top chart. So the top paid is uh hooray, Tweetbot four. Well I think today Good probably four. Tweetbot. Yeah. Um but number two yeah. is Purify.
1: Yeah but I think Crystal was up there for a while and pure or Purify. I forget one well, of the- I think
0: I have to you gotta look at grossing though. But Grossing is they don't even register. It's all candy it's all candy crush.
1: Yeah, that's that's been up there for a while. Well, I was at at on on pieces top day, the one full day it was on the chart. It was grossing at, I think like number seventeen or eighteen for a little while, not for the whole day, but uh, that was that was the peak, and then it 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 was able to fall down the grossing ranks pretty far while still being number one in the paid chart. To give you you know like it, the volumes are are much lower obviously in paid. Um, but yeah, it would I mean any app that's going to sit there anywhere like in the top twenty paid uh, is going to be making really good money for a while. So and I, I don't you know. If other people want to go in there and make a ton of money making ad blockers, that's fine. Like, I'm willing and happy to yield that ground to other people. That's why I did it. You know, it's, I, I got there, realized I really didn't like being there, and left. Yeah, I actually
0: haven't looked in a while. It seems weird to me, though. I thought that there would be a couple up there, but it looks like it's all down to Purify now. It doesn't, I don't see any of the others, although maybe, maybe they're on the free list and they're, I don't know which one's popular. I thought there were a couple that would be
1: popular, though. For a while, Crystal and Purify were neck and neck. And then I think maybe Purify, maybe Crystal's uh, thing with the acceptable ads, thing, that's a, I mean, that's a whole other drama that I don't really want to get into because I'm not involved happily anymore. But it, that's the kind of thing where it just shows how incredibly messy and difficult this business is. And that's a perfect example of why I don't want to be in it after all, because yeah. it is just very messy and very difficult.
0: As we record on on Thursday, October first, Crystal is all the way down at thirty two on the top paid, and like I said, Purify is number two. Um, so obviously, there's been some divergence there. But you 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 know, and and there is this weird self perpetuating. It's this you know we've talked about this in so many different contexts ever since the App Store opened. But once something is atop these charts it tends to stay there because one of the ways that people people hear hey i hear there's odd ad blockers for ios they go to the app store what do they do they go to the top chart they see one that looks reasonable at the top of the chart and they get it and by that time then they get it purify works it you know definitely does what it says on the tin so then they're done you know they've just spent two or three bucks or whatever it costs on their thing and they're done and then none of the other you know so being at top is a huge advantage so you you know peace having started at the top I think there's a very good chance that it would still be there today if you if you hadn't uh, yanked it.
1: Maybe, but at the same time, like you know, right now you can see like Purify has already fallen to number two. Uh, you know, we'll see. You know, h- how much it stays at the top or how much it falls over time. I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks. It- it's been a pretty short time. So I don't even know if I would have been able to be there for a month. I don't even know if that would have happened. You know, there's no way to know. Uh, but yeah, I, it doesn't I matter. Also- like. I also
0: wonder how much this is going to be one of those things where it's not like sustained. Not, not not that it's not a sustainable business, because I don't think it's that much development work to keep it going. Um, but that uh, uh, let's say 15 to 20 percent of iOS users might be interested in a, a content blocker. Well, how soon until all of them already have one? And then then what? I don't I'm not right. quite sure if, if it's going to be a chart topper per, in perpetuity
1: yeah and we tried speculating on that on ATP like like what percentage of iOS people are likely to actually install and critically enable an ad blocker uh, and we came to about ten percent being our estimate of people who would actually enable it also because you have to like go through the settings menu and dive down to the safari settings and actually turn it on in that in that convoluted settings thing so then like the the idea that ad blockers are going to all of a sudden ruin everyone's lives uh, I, I think is Unlikely and and probably exaggerated.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's likely. I don't think it's likely that it would be that much different than on the desktop. And on the desktop, I I, I pulled the 15% from what I think is what people estimate is the desktop number. Um, and obviously, that changes yeah, a lot. Yeah, that seems lot, reasonable. Changes a lot based on the audience. You know, I know Ars Technica, for example, oh, yeah. is really, really uh, hit hard by that because their audience is is technically adept. Um, you know, my site probably is, to some extent, just because at least there's a high percentage of people who read my site who know what an ad blocker is and, you know, feel very, very, con- you know, confident installing an extension. Uh,
1: it's also worth pointing browser. out, like, you know, the, there's a lot of people. Sorry. It's also worth pointing out that there's there's a lot of, um, like, all those people who install the ad blockers, who are, like, more likely to install ad blockers, like, like nerds who visit Ars technica and, and your site, Uh how likely were they to click on the display ads to begin with? You know, like I i bet the ratio. I mean, I've always kind of suspected that display ads on the internet are mostly supported by inadvertent accidental clicks or people who don't realize they're clicking on an ad who who click, who are misled into clicking on it by it looking like content or by one of those like stupid story ads, like, you know, top 10 ways to lift your face up, like all those crazy things. Like, I, I've always kind of suspected that the bulk of display advertising online was being clicked through and funded by really accident or novices, it's you know.
0: fueled by ignorance and confusion.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's really, it, and uh, you know, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's not all of it, but I bet it's a lot more than both the advertisers and the publishers would like to believe.
0: Yeah, well, it's it is truly a. They they truly opened a Pandora's box way back in the 90s when they first started measuring clicks in the first place, and I, I've linked to this over the years, you know, in numerous contexts talking about ads. But it's come back up again. It it's it is absolutely a case of be careful what you measure, um, coming to bite them because at first, when nobody was trying to game the system at all, it, the idea of counting the actual clicks on the ads was amazing because nobody ever knew when you when you put an ad in a magazine um, you have a good guess that the circulation numbers are probably pretty accurate because there were you know industry standards you know maybe they tried to fudge them a little bit but for the most part it, it was so expensive to print magazines they couldn't be that far off. Um, but how many people actually read your ad if it's on page 13? Or, you know, how many people skip right past it? You know, what what was the register? To actually be able to measure it in a meaningful way. You know, TV commercials could never really be measured. Um, it, it If there was no gaming, if everybody was honest in the world, which is probably the biggest, stupidest if I've ever put forward, um, <laughs> c- counting the clicks on ads would be great. And it, it did at first, web advertising was like super, super expensive, like in a per-customer you know, however you want to measure that because it could be measured. Um, but then as soon as people could, you know, as soon as that started working, people immediately started gaming it in various ways. So it's, you know, once and once they started going down that path, it was it doomed and still is to this day, the fact that they try to measure it.
1: Right. Cause, and then you have all these problems with click fraud and botnets doing click fraud and all this stuff. Uh, it's It's this whole world of people trying to rip each other off and right. it's just disgusting to me like that's again it's one of the reasons why I didn't want to be in the business after all just it's just it's just a dirty messy world
0: at a fundamental level the way i view advertising is uh, even online is that it's fundamentally no different than advertising in in print or on tv and that, and which is to say that it is primarily about awareness making people aware maybe people who've never heard of your product making them aware of it for the first time or if they have heard of it reinforcing it with your brand, you know, you know, if it's some kind of visual ad um, or with some kind of message about it, like, for example, like the ads I'll be reading during this podcast uh, where you're not seeing anything, but you can hear these talking points. Here's what they want you to know about it Um, so that you have it in your head so that if you need a new mattress, you can think, well, what about that one that uh, all these podcasts are talking about? or something like that, just so it's in your head awareness. The fact that online ads can actually lead to engagement quicker, meaning, you know, you can just click on an ad and go and you're already at the field notes website, and you can buy the notebooks right there. That that's great. But that should just be at, you know, anybody who's deciding how much to spend online versus print or on TV, that should just be icing on the cake. It's, Still should primarily be, look, if we put an ad on this website, we think we're going to, we can expect 100,000 people will see it. Um, and we roughly know that their, you know, their demographics are like this. That's really all they, they should be looking at. But the fact that they think that they can, like, identify people, you know, we'll spend this money and it'll only go to people who've searched in Google Maps for an oil change in the last 25 days. Uh, it's just crazy. And it leads to all sorts of sickness
1: yeah and all sorts of really creepy and perverse incentives and behavior like it, it's it's one of those worlds where anybody who who is kind of privacy and and sensibly minded uh, or anybody who has really strong ethics i think is often driven out of that business yeah. like because if they won't do it someone else will you guys on
0: ATP you guys compared it to the pornography industry. And then I think you guys kind of backed away from it, because it's almost like, wow, that's a real strong comparison. But I actually think it's actually really, I think that's not a bad comparison at all, in terms of um, that you're, it's not, you know, remove any judgment of whether the existence of pornography in and of itself has any sort of moral, um, uh, you know, any kind of moral quandary that you should be pondering. It's just that, that you end up in programming and doing things that are you know whoever's implementing it is unhealthy right that if you know um uh if it's some kind of pay per thing for porno you you, you're you know that they're they're set up in a way somebody had to program the system that enables somebody who's got like an addiction to the stuff to just keep spending as much money as they can that's you know you that is absolutely immoral. I mean, and either somebody feels really guilty about that, or somebody who wrote that code just doesn't have a moral compass that points that way. Uh, a lot of the stuff, the programmatic stuff in advertising is it's down that path. you know it's maybe not quite as far, but it's, it's pretty, pretty bad. You know that you're doing yeah. things that you, you know, that the user isn't happy about that isn't good for them, um, and that they wouldn't want to know exactly what's going on
1: right and and one of the problems that that you know so that's the side of the advertiser the side of the ad blocker of like the person or company making and running the ad blocker itself that faces an interesting dilemma where and i think you see this playing out with this acceptable ads thing with adblock plus and crystal and the the controversy this has stirred up um, the and and some things you've said about the deck and everything and how the deck had their privacy policy and everything and whether you know the question of whether the deck should be should count as an advertiser that should be blocked, one of the problems here, I faced this with InstaPaper um, back forever ago. Uh, I faced the problem that what people actually wanted was to get the articles without ever viewing the ads, even once. They wanted me to go out and scrape new articles for them they had never seen before and show them immediately in the in the ad stripped text view. Uh, like that's what people actually want. And what's actually healthy for publishers and for the world and for me legally was not to do things like that. It was to say, you know, okay, well, I'm going to save things you have viewed in your web browser. You know, like that's, that's different. And it was, it was always a really tricky balance because the, the user base, you know, the, the customer, the market was pushing me to go over that line and I would always try to hold back a little bit, Uh, but not all my competitors did and that hurt me. And I think in the ad blocker industry, I think you, you're going to see you see the same thing, which is, you know, we can talk all we want about how, like, you know, well... Like, I, I also, on ATP, I compared it kind of to piracy. And it's not... These aren't great comparisons, so please don't email us, but, you know, it, it's, it it has some overlap, is is what I will say about that. And in the sense that, like, you know, making an ad blocker is kind of like making money from piracy. It's like, well, people are going to pay me to hide everyone else's ads. And I can say, well, I can justify it with reasons X, Y, and Z, many of which are perfectly valid, things like security, tracking, creepiness, etc. Those are all very valid reasons. Uh, but if I made an ad blocker that only blocked tracking and still showed ads, nobody would want it. Because what people actually want is, is to block all the ads and all the tracking and the, and the security and the creepiness. Those are all convenient justifications for them. Just like when people pirate stuff, they say, well, it wasn't available in my country yet, or it wasn't available without DRM in the format I wanted on the box. I wanted to play it on whatever, like people can rationalize all sorts of reasons for piracy while also knowing, yeah, it's also kind of not right. Um, And so that's, that's how I was feeling about ad blocking when I, when I quit was like, I, I could rationalize a whole bunch of reasons why this needs to exist and why I might even want to still run one, which I do right now. I still run Ghostery on my computer, and I still run. Uh, I'm I'm switching between various uh, blockers on my phone, trying to find a good one. I'm I'm currently using one blocker. Um, you know, people people will rationalize his reasons, but to be the person making it and enabling this and making money from it, even it, it puts it on a different level. And there's always going to be this tension between you know trying to make it seem morally acceptable, but also the reality of what the market really wants is to get everything for free and to not see any ads ever. And no matter what they say, if, if they, if they say it's all about something else, it's all about tracking, whatever. Some people are honest about that. Most aren't. Most I, people just want to block all the ads.
0: I disagree. I really do disagree. I think there's definitely some subset of people who really do want to block the ads really do. Um, you know, sort of the, uh, what's that? There's even a magazine. What's that called? Uh, sort of like an anti-advertising magazine we need consumer a, reports no 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 they used, to, they used to sell it at whole foods but they don't anymore but it's uh uh it'll come to me um we need a goddamn forum like you guys have um it, it's the people who are opposed to advertising in general not just online advertising but who actually are crusaders about the you know that that advertising is a perverse force on 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 our society um you know, and it's obviously you don't have to go far to find cases. There's, there are some cases where it is. You know, um, you know the, the cigarette companies and the advert. You know the way that that they've been. Um, that legislation has been passed that you, they really can't advertise anymore, and that when they used to be able to, they really did. You could prove it that they 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 targeted their ads to children. Um, you know, famously the Joe Camel uh, cartoon mascot for camel cigarettes was, um, uh, if, if there were polls where they would go and, and, you know, talk to kindergartners and there, he, amazing, amazing brand awareness in kindergarten age kids of the mascot for a cigarette company, that's really sick. And it wasn't an accident. It was actually planned. So yeah that's a, you know, there's an example. There are people who kind of feel that way about all ads and, and and maybe it's not even the messaging. There's others who are clearly online who really care about every single byte of data, every byte. Um, somebody pointed out to me, for example, and and with daring fireball in the deck, the deck ads are so small compared to ad- online ads, you know, in general. But because daring fireball has almost no images, um, oftentimes has no images other than like the logo uh, on the whole homepage. Uh, the deck actually comprises a significant portion of the average page view, especially if you don't even look at the whole homepage where there is a whole big wall of text. But if you just go to like an individual um, short entry, a a significant portion, maybe even a majority portion of the bytes that get downloaded on the page view go to the ad. I, I think looking at that as a percentage is kind of unfair just because of the design of Daring Fireball. But if you really want to look at it that way, okay, fine. I say, go ahead and block the ads, you know, but I don't think a lot of people feel that way. I think people, the thing that's opening people's eyes with this, with, with the content blocking are the performance numbers that people are seeing. Yeah. I think when I see people whose eyes have been opened by like some of the stuff like that, Ben Brooks has been publishing when he's, you know, doing the yeoman's work of testing all these things. Um, and the new york times published a thing today where they they tested a bunch of sites with ad blockers and when you see that you can save 30 seconds on a mobile page view when you go to boston.com by having an ad blocker i don't think it is about blocking ads it's i just want my i want that speed increase
1: yeah and that's that's certainly a major part of it that is a major justification and and a major motivator uh, especially on mobile, you know, on desktop it was it was easier to get wasteful and kind of ignore it, but on mobile it matters more. Uh, on mobile, also screen space matters more. You know, like yeah. the ads that would come in and take over a massive chunk of the screen, or do these stupid overlays, or break when you zoomed in. <laughs> it's so many bad ad things out there, but it, it's a major motivator. But I think I think it comes a bit comes down to like if you ask people, would you rather see this thing with ads or with no ads? They would choose no ads every time. <laughs> you know, obviously there's some exceptions, like you know, like certain magazines where like the ads are kind of the point. Um, but for the most part, most content, I think, pe- if people were given the option to take it with no ads, they would take that option. You know, assuming the cost was equal and probably both free. Um, and so, what you have in the ad business is this kind of tension, this this kind of balanced tension. Well, usually it's balanced, where the people really want the stuff for free. And they don't want to pay they, they don't want to pay for it, and they also don't want to see ads. And the publishers, you know, they obviously can't operate for free. So like they say, all right, well, we'll kind of reach this equilibrium. Like, okay, well, we're gonna show ads, and most of you are going to tolerate them. And you're gonna tolerate it because you don't want to pay us, and that's kind of okay. And for the most part, both sides of that usually it's this it's this at this relationship of tolerating you, not actually wanting the ads or enjoying the ads um you know most people if given the choice again they would they would say well i don't have to see the ads then don't show them to me or don't waste my time with them um so it's always this kind of tension and in in the in the grand scheme of things i think people do like free content better than they like paywalled stuff so ultimately i think i think this is a necessary evil like it's and obviously it isn't always evil you know but it's a necessary um, compromise uh, of, of how how content is viewed and paid for and everything and you know and i i run the deck ads on my site i run ads on my podcast just like you do on here and that's those are both choices where it's like you know i also uh, you know i i would love to do an ad free podcast where people just paid us but that would make a lot less money and to reach a lot less people and you know if you put a paywall up in front of a podcast that is just death like nobody listens um so it's it's really it, it's it's never a great relationship. It's never perfect. You know, it, it's never really what all sides want, but it's this compromise that all sides have reached mm-hmm. most of the time. And anything you do to throw that out of balance, um, like making the ads really obnoxious or really creepy or really overreaching or really slow or have other major problems, um, there's gonna be pushback from that. But the basic the basic notion of I'm going to show you ads, and you're going to tolerate them. It's it's a little bit uncomfortable even from the start, yeah. you know. And it's I've always I've always kind of felt mildly irritated by the fact that I that I make my living on ads because I I don't like ads, you know. But but I, I think this is the best solution we have given all the variables.
0: I think that's where you, the comparison to piracy works. As I've always seen piracy as a, a negotiation. It is, you know, uh, somebody, if they're pirating an app or a game, um, they're, you know, the, whoever makes the game is saying, here, it's here's a new game for your PC, it's $40. And the person who pirates it instead of paying for it is saying, no, it's $0. Um, and at some point, and I know that, you know, with piracy, there are absolute diehards you know, and there are people, you know, kids, I, I, when I was, you know, in college, I pirated all sorts of stuff. Um, and it wasn't, wasn't like if Adobe had to have the price of Photoshop, I was going to pay for it instead of pirating it. Um, I, I realized that, but you know, for some things at some point it's it. And I think that that was the key to the iTunes music store, uh, making online music a, a success is that it they they were saying here's a better deal. We we'll have all the music. You'll get your album art. It'll all have good metadata right there. You'll you'll be sure of the quality, um, and it's a fair price ninety nine cents. And did it stop music piracy? No, definitely not. But it definitely turned some people who might have otherwise or previously been using Napster or you know whatever the you know the stuff that came after Napster was to instead just say you know what I'll just buy it from iTunes. It's a negotiation. I think what you see, and it's the same thing with a lot of piracy, and you see it with the entertainment industry uh, and the way they approach movies uh, and stuff like that, and and music and games and software. Um, And I think it's very true with the advertising industry is that the industry, the publishers and the advertisers, um, or the entertainment companies, they don't see it as a negotiation. They see this as a problem that could be solved so that they can do whatever they want, and them, the people, will just take it we can we can show you whatever online ads we want and you'll just suck it up i I, that's and that there's some you know i'm sure that there's a whole bunch of people who are if they're looking at wow our mobile numbers are down this month you know this ios content blocking thing is totally real it's you can see it here you know five six seven percent down um you know over where we were before this came out um you know that there's people right now who's who are thinking or who are demanding of their engineering teams to find a way around this. So not not like how do we, you know, how do we start selling ads that people don't want to block? It's how do we defeat the content blockers? And you know, I think that's the wrong attitude. That's not that's not going to win.
1: Exactly. Um So right, but but on the on the other side when they make new kinds of ads, then the ad blocker people are going to say, well, now we need to block this new kind of ad. Like the Neither side is willing to agree to the other side's terms here. Like The, the advertiser is not going to say, well, I guess we better stop publishing ads because nobody likes ads. And the ad blockers aren't going to say, well, you know what? That ad is fine. We're going right. to publish that one because if they do, the users revolt and they go to something else.
0: Um. So I I don't know what the ultimate solution is, but it's it's absolutely some form of having a basic respect for the user and for your product. And I've been saying the following for years as well. Is to me, as somebody who's always been uh, sort of obsessed by publishing and advertising and graphic design and branding and things like this, whether it's, you know, print or TV or uh online. It has always been, right from the very get-go, it has always been very clear to me that the traditional companies, either from TV or from print, when they went online, by and large, they had very little to no respect for the web. They either treated it as like... At some point, they had to stop treating it as as maybe a fad. But clearly, at the beginning, a lot of them thought maybe this is a fad. Uh, And they never, ever treated it with the respect that they treat their main products. You know, they would never put a pop-up that actually covered the actors' faces on a TV show, right? Whatever you want to say about, you know, even when they put, they do some stuff that still annoys me on TV, like where they'll put little things up at the bottom of the screen, but they don't do something that covers the actual whole content of the show while the show is playing. Um, magazines don't allow advertisers to make ads that, like, tape pages.
1: Well, they're, they're getting worse every year with that.
0: Well, now that print is getting desperate, they, it might be out of desperation. But certainly while they were profitable, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't make you, like, let's say a popular page like the the op-ed page in the New York Times. They weren't going to seal that with some kind of tape so that you have to sit there and spend 30 seconds looking at the whatever logo is on the tape while you carefully cut across it to do it. Um, but they've treated online ads like that all along. Give it time. I really do, but here's the thing. I, I'm I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell you. I, I feel like I have to explain why I thought you shouldn't have taken peace out of the store. And at the time, I didn't realize that having read your piece, your 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 article explaining it, I would have said, "Okay, you're right. If that's the way you feel, then just get out." I didn't know when you called me. I didn't know what you were thinking. The problem was. I think the idea of um, that once it was out, and once you saw that this was, you know, that there was controversy to be had and arguments to be made, and that it was going to be a nonstop, never, never ending slog of what deserves to be blocked and what doesn't, the realization that you didn't want to be in this business was, you know, uh, I think it was the right call. I didn't know that that's what you were thinking. Um, I also think that this is why you're still getting shit from people out in the internet is the, cause I've, I have seen this where there are people who, you know, are like LOLing at how could you build a content blocker all summer long and not imagine what it was like to have a content blocker. I can imagine that very easily that you didn't really think about it. I, I thought your explanation, here's a cool API. I'd like to build one myself. I like to build things. So I'll build a thing and you exactly. don't think past that.
1: Exactly. That was that was really it. It's like you know I I explained all about it on ATP. It's like all summer long I was focused on how to make a really cool app using this stuff, and I, I was not focusing on what will it actually be like if I make this cool app succeed and become a major person influential in this business and having everyone look at me this way. And I I didn't think about that. You know I should have, uh, but I was naive and I I, I wanted to, to do the cool thing where i make the cool app and then you know i didn't you know it, it didn't really matter what the app did i just i want i had this cool app idea and i i tried it and it worked really well and so i i was motivated to keep going with it and i just didn't think about um you know what what would happen and you know i mean a lot about this is a lot of the a lot of the frustration and anger that i've received over it from other people is really about like you know they they just can't believe that this that I got to that position and that I then gave it up for very few reasons. So that, <laughs> that's one of the reasons, you know, one of the other reasons is like, how do you walk away from all that money? And it's like, you know, it's like, well, you know, money isn't everything and I felt bad about it, et cetera. Um, and I mean, just w- once I decided to to take it off the store um, and, and I, I decide, w- when I had it, once I decided that, it, like you said you were at the dentist, it was the, the, the moment I decided, oh, I should take this off the store. It was like 10.30 in the morning. It was down by 12.30. Uh, it was it was like two hours. Like, all I had to do was I, I talked it over with my wife. I ran it by you. And I ran it by the ghostry people to make sure that I even could do it without breaking the contract. And and that they weren't going to be, you know, horribly mad about it. And that was it. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I want to do this. I'm done. Like, as soon as I even had the idea to do it, I felt a million times better. Like, I it was like this giant weight off my shoulders. And... That night when I was working on Overcast again for the first time in a couple of weeks, it felt so good. Because Overcast will probably not make, in its entire next year, what Peace could make in two or three days. (laughs) But it's (laughs) funny because... I felt so much better about it, you know? And
0: you and I have talked about this, that one of the things some people have a very hard time believing is that anybody... Obviously, I don't think everybody thinks this way. I don't even think a majority, but there are clearly some people who cannot get it through their heads that pure money is not a primary motivating factor for us. It's great. I am successful right now, and I do appreciate that, and it's important to me because I have a family, and so it is certainly a significant motivator and it is a very high priority for me, but it's not number one and maximizing it, getting every single dollar that I can absolutely positively is not. It's number one motivator for me is, is, you know, professionally is doing good work that I'm proud of. And number two is probably like just what I feel like is the overall quality of my life. Am I happy? Uh, Money obviously plays a factor in that, but you know, making the most money possible definitely doesn't.
1: Right. And, and, you know, it, it, you and I are both fortunate that you and I have made enough money and, and make make enough money through other means that, like, we can say no to things that don't feel right to us. And, and you know, there's, there's all these studies done, like, you know, every... Th- there, there's a threshold for everybody, and, and it's surprisingly low, where additional money that you make above that threshold doesn't really make you happier. You know, so there is this concept of, like, what is enough? And... In most cultures that aren't Americans, that number is way lower. But even Americans have, you know, this concept of what is enough beyond which it stops really adding to your happiness in, in a proportional way. And I've heard estimates of that number being as low as like $75,000 a year, uh, which, you know, for in the software business is, is a pretty mid-range to low salary. So, like, it's pretty, for people who are, like, listening to the show, it's not that hard to achieve that. You know, it's, it isn't that unheard of.
0: Yeah. So the idea
1: that that you that you know if you already make a, a six figure salary and you know the idea that you could turn away money from something that you that makes you feel terrible um, that actually there's a lot of like widespread you know surveys and and psychology and stuff to back that up where yeah that actually is plausible to do and in fact people do it frequently like that you know once once you once you've reached a certain level of income. You don't just you, you don't have to say yes to everything, and in fact, if you and a lot of people choose poorly on that scale and say yes to everything and are miserable for it, and yeah. they don't necessarily realize that like you know they don't have to do that.
0: Yeah, I and mean, there's a lot of people who you know you you know people who who do it not just because they're well off enough and they can keep their lifestyle. People who downgrade their lifestyle. And are delighted by it. You know, somebody who is just killing themselves in a corporate attorney job, you know, 100-some hours a week doing this mind-numbing work. And then they leave and become, you know, a teacher or something. Yeah, or or like,
1: you know, you take a job that has a much shorter commute that's way closer to your house. Even if it pays less than the job that's all the way in the city, you're way happier taking the job that's a shorter commute. And you' and it's you're able to rationally say yes I can turn down the extra money for the job in the city because I will be way happier and probably healthier and probably have a better family life if I if I choose this one right it's, or, it's the same kind of thing it all plays in
0: or somebody who leaves uh, a, a six-figure engineering job at Apple or any of the you know big companies out there and it just opens up their own coffee shop which is a notor- you know opening up a restaurant notoriously uh, low margin difficult business to be in, but that all they've ever wanted to do is roast their own coffee and make a cool place, you know, where people can hang out, you know, and if that's what you want to do, I mean, that could be so much happier and you're making way less money, way less. But anyway, that's it's people don't think I'll give you a concrete example of money that I've passed up. Um, and it's I don't think it's a thing. It certainly wasn't sustainable. I think Google's search algorithms have gotten around it. But at some point in the late Last decade, I would, I'm going to guess that it peaked somewhere around 2008 to 2010 or so. Um, it was a non stop barrage every week where I got offers from people to place text ads on Daring
1: Fireball. Oh, yeah, the big text ad thing. Yep.
0: Either they wanted them on the homepage or it would, you know, it'd be some specific page that ranked highly for a certain keyword, a post that I had written. And they would offer thousands of dollars. I mean, and I remember one time it was it was a guy, and I actually pursued it, not because I thought I would take it, but I honestly, it was like something like $20,000 for, I don't know, a couple of months. Um, and it just seemed like such a large amount of money, but the, I just wanted to see, is this a scam? This is a scam. But then I thought, how can it be a scam? Because if I don't get the money, I'm going to take the text ad down. And it's, you know, it's the, the uh, and I thought, well, maybe the scam is that they think that Google will index it once, And I was like, no, it can't be because this is an article, like let's say a year old article. If they think that there's value to be gained by putting a text ad there now, they must know that Google re-indexes these pages. And so therefore, they must know that if I take the text ad down, that it'll re-index and they won't have that Google juice, you know. And I just researched the company and it really seemed like, yes, this is a company that pays publishers. Tens of thousands of dollars to place these text ads and then you could do things they didn't even care all they cared about was the search engines and you you could do things like use css to make it display none or or fix position at four thousand pixels off screen whatever you wanted they didn't care so it wasn't like anybody would know it wasn't like anybody would see it but it was thousands of dollars from just non-stop for years and i say no to all of them or 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 the other thing i would do is i would write back and they would be like what they would they a lot of them would say what is what would you want how much would you want for me to put a text ad um on a page and i would write back uh you know a hundred thousand dollars and then they would say that's too much i've you know you're i've i you know because they're looking at like alexa numbers or something to gauge my traffic um but before I got to like ridiculous numbers like that, I would offer, you know, I remember I would write back as a joke and just say like $10,000 and they'd be like, well, how about seven? And I'd be like, oh, shit. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's like you thought you were throwing out this obscene right. number that they would laugh at. Right. And they were actually like, yeah, that's pretty close, actually. Yeah, well, we can do that.
0: Now, these, <laughs> these are ads that uh, weren't, all they wanted was the text. All they wanted to do was trick Google and other search yeah. indexes. There that was, was no... a
1: major industry for a while. I think I think it's finally probably died down as Google got smarter, but that yeah. was a major industry. It was a
0: major industry, and the money was truly significant. I mean, it, I don't know what I could have if I had pursued it, but easily tens of thousands a month.
1: Yeah, I ran those. Like, back when work had like 100 visitors a month, I ran those from a company called TextLink Ads. It was like TextLink Ads with hyphens in it, and that was the company name. They might even still be around. I'm sure they've been bought a million times. I don't think, but but I uh, think
0: TextLink Ads were, I think that in particular, they they weren't so scammy. They they no wanted- it was very
1: it was very similar like oh, yeah. you you embedded this PHP things I remember I even I I was still very new to PHP at the time but but I even modified the code to add no follow to the links and I think that eventually got me kicked out mm. but because uh, I I was aware of what they were doing and I was like well you know I'm gonna add no follow because that's the that's the right thing to do and they they didn't have an explicit rule against it that I could find at the time I wrote that code.
0: (laughs) But this wasn't doing any tracking. It wasn't going to, I mean, literally, it was just HTML, so it wasn't even going to have any measurable effect on download size. We're talking about not even kilobytes, but bytes, actual just extra bytes.
1: Right, although it would, if it loaded synchronously, which it would have had to do what they wanted with Google, it would block the page load while it fetched it on your server side.
0: I don't even think, I think they just wanted me to actually just paste here, paste this little snippet of HTML oh, into the article.
1: It wasn't even dynamic. It was like, no, static. it wasn't even dynamic. That, most of the oh, offers. Wow. Now,
0: I th- I think that there were some services like TextLink ads where it was dynamic because they wanted to yeah, keep selling it. Yeah, yeah. But I used to field these offers from people who just wanted to buy a month of, you know, just put this snippet of HTML in this article uh, for a month, you know for, a, you know, significant money. And I didn't do it. I turned it down because it just felt gross and it just, and, and I didn't need it. I do have to admit, cause you know, the, the whole RSS sponsorship thing that at this point was taking off and it was doing well. And the deck was, you know, I was already in the deck, so I didn't need it. I was already at the point where I could say daring fireball is, you know, supporting my family. I don't need to pile this on with things that I'm not proud of.
1: And so exactly. I,
0: I, you know, so I didn't, um, But there are, you know, there's other examples. I've fielded offers from people, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, other ad networks. um, You know, effectively, I would have had to quit the deck and go to them, who offered me way more than the deck, you know, has ever paid me per month. Um, And, you know, I just said no to all of them because I, it just dancing around switching ad networks and going to the highest bidder and looking and their ads, obviously, they, they just weren't, they weren't little nice static ads like the deck. They were big and ugly.
1: Right, uh, like the standard IAB big rectangles yeah. and everything. I mean, the, the idea of looking like the deck has this amazing lock-in uh, because once you, once you are accustomed to the way your own site looks with the deck, and once your readers are accustomed to the way your site looks with the deck, just imagine what your site would look like with this with the giant like skyscraper out in the sidebar, like the regular yeah. like like a big white like <laughs> like that would look horrendous. Like it it wouldn't look like your site at all. No. It would look like. It would look like you were like on some crazy Wi-Fi that was like injecting ads into, the, into every page you visited. Like it would look like a scam or malware had taken over or something. It yeah. would you would you would never say oh that's daring fireball that's normal, like and you know it, that just goes to show I think like the different worlds that that are possible here in the advertising space. Like you have you know fully native stuff like your RSS sponsorships that are now everyone's doing uh, that that podcast do. Then you have like the the very very subtle. Model, like what the deck does, and then you have everything else which is <laughs> mostly like these giant, horrible things and and i I do think. But I can, say, I, I, I can say for
0: certainty that it wasn't like the other ones that would come to me were offering me, well, oh, it would be 25% more than the deck or 30. It wasn't like a percentage more. It was a factor of like three, four, five times more, like five times more than what I was making from the deck. It was significant money. The way I always chalked it up, and, I, and Amy completely supported me on this, is that to me, the money that I was leaving on the table um, by not using those ads was effectively in, investing in the brand of Daring Fireball.
1: Yeah, that's totally right. I mean, because your site has always had that look. It's always even even in the age now where you know you might want to consider a mobile layout and a bigger font someday, maybe. But you know, your, your site has always had this look, and that that definitely does help. It definitely it definitely does contribute. It makes your site look higher class, more valuable, um, certainly it's much more pleasant to read as long as you hit the plus button a few times on the keyboard. Uh, it is. It is very. It very much contributes.
0: You know, if you go to slash prefs, you'll get a little prefer. It, it's actually, there used to be multiple prefs, which yeah, is I why.
1: I think I do that on all my devices.
0: Yeah, and then sets Do co- you sync
1: via iCloud? I doubt it.
0: No, it sets, <laughs> sets a cookie on your device. But anybody who doesn't know this, you can go to daringfireball.net slash prefs, and you can set the font size, and it'll save it in a cookie on that device.
1: Yeah, you know maybe maybe I should get to you sometime and make you finally update your font. <laughs> It'll, happen. It'll add, happen. Add a responsive layout, maybe.
0: Well, you know what? The honesty, what though honestly, all right, not to it, it's I, we can keep going on this. I to, I, <laughs> I got to do a sponsor break, but one of the things that um, if I do, if and when I do, I, I want to change it once. I want to change the layout to Daring Fireball uh, once, and then have it last at least another fifteen to twenty years. Um, no pressure. Well, I, the, the last design, you know, has gone close to what's, so I changed it in like 2003 or 2004. There was an early, there's like a, for the first year of during Fireball was a slightly different design. So 11 years. Um, I feel like I could get one that goes for 15 and maybe I'll need to tweak it. Like I have this one, you know, here and there subtly over the years, but you know, I want to do it once, but to do it once, I think it would require web fonts. And I've procrastinated for years on web fonts because I just can't get over the fact that to me they feel a little slow. And one of the things that I really love about Daring Fireball is how fast it is. One of my favorite things I get from people from email or tweets or something like that is every once in a while, um, like if Daring Fireball does go down or if there's like a, a, a DNS outage on the net. Which makes really weird things. And it's like some people, you know, like people say, Hey, is Daring Fireball down? And I check and it's definitely not down. It's right there really fast. But I keep, I get like three or four of these. It's usually like a DNS problem. And people who are somewhere on some chunk of the internet can't get there. Um, and when people say the following to me, it always makes my day. They say, Daring Fireball isn't just one of my favorite sites, it's also the thing I always go to when I want to check my internet connection. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, but they expect that it's always up, and they expect it to load like instantly. Uh, and web fonts definitely change that. So I've put off on that, you know. And and that's funny because with the content bloggers, a lot of them have an option to block web fonts specifically, just just to make things faster. Not because anybody's really opposed to nobody's opposed to good looking fonts and nobody's opposed to nice design. But people, some people favor. Uh, fast page loads over, you know, pristine design or however you want to put it.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was doing that in from the early builds of piece. That was like one of the very first things I built was I built one that blocked all third party JavaScript, which was insane but worked. And uh, and I and it had an option to block all web fonts, and it broke my site. It broke a lot of other sites, but it it was so much faster. Like it it was a massive speed difference. And so now like. As much as I love the this wonderful HfJ uh, Ideal Sans font that I use on my site and and you know as far as I know like I've seen a couple of benchmarks here and there that suggest that the HfJ um, web fonts are not as fast as Typekit but either way neither none of them are what I would call fast enough you know like they you're still loading a few hundred kilobytes of of fonts for most people that you know, and it's from some other CDN that is off off-host, so it's like making another connection and everything, and po- another opportunity for weird latency or DNS issues. Yeah. Um, and you know, the fact is, web fonts are really nice; they're they're very much like a nice to have. But if they're going to come at a big cost, they're probably not worth it for most sites. And what I found when I like when, when I would when I've been browsing with with web fonts disabled on my phone for, for a while now. Um, and even with Ghostery on the desktop, I would I would uh, turn off Typekit because that's one of their trackers that they that they can block. Um, I've been doing that for a couple months too, and you really don't miss much. Like it's you know you you can tell on certain sites where like they didn't have a good fallback, so it defaults to, like Times New Roman. You can you know you can tell like oh this wasn't supposed to look like Times, but uh, for the most part, things load really fast. And nothing looks that bad, and yeah. many times it looks pretty good because if it, it falls back to something sensible. So, you know, I, I would say it, if if I redesign my site anytime soon, uh, I would almost certainly go back to a regular system font and not use any more web fonts just for speed because it just isn't yeah. worth it. Um, and that being said, in in defense of your ancient site design, I will say that that a couple months ago, I I decided to to be a smartass and to try to try to like just write like 10 lines of CSS or whatever that I could just like text you and have you inject it in your template. and Be like, here's your, here's your fricking responsive layout here, like here, just modernize your site with this little thing I just wrote in an hour. So that was my plan. I was going to do this and I tried, I started and your site is surprisingly complex. <laughs> like I, I tried doing that and I realized it was going to be way more work than, than what I had planned for, this is a common theme with me, uh, <laughs> it was going to be way more work. And I was like, ah, okay, now I understand why you haven't done this yet.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty that, – well, I mean, it's been so
1: long that I don't really have an excuse. But Well, it's, I, you've probably started it like 10 times. Yeah, it's,
0: it's a lot of boring backstories there, but um, it'll happen sooner or later. But yeah, there's no way to just take the current HTML and easily – do it. I mean, you can make a new one that looks that, that on a wide screen looks the same, but the the way that everything is structured right now is actually sort of uh, fights against responsive layout. Um, it'll happen. Well, the other thing, probably the worst thing that ever happened was the fact that with a very li- a very short amount of, I think it's just like that one viewport meta tag, um, and the fact that a double tap on the main text column is pretty good. And it has been since the original iPhone in 2007. I mean, like two lines of code in 2007 made it easy to just double tap on the center column of text and have it reasonable, you know, pretty good size and a pretty good width. It's not nice and fixed so that you can can still slide around sideways when you scroll. But um, it's actually pretty good for a, a, you know, for a non-mobile-optimized layout. And that's probably the worst thing that ever happened because if it had been terrible on iPhone, I would have done something in 2007 or 2008.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's... I mean, your site works the way every site worked in 2007. You know, and that's, this was the problem that I created Instapaper to solve. Like, it one of the problems is, like, I didn't want to keep zooming in on everyone's pages. And then, like, I would scroll, scroll, scroll as I was reading. And then I'd oh, accidentally get misaligned a little bit, side to side. And then i oh, let me try to realign back to the center column. I never quite get it right. I have to zoom back out, zoom back in. Because I'm, you know, just retentive like that. Um, and I, I I talked to um, a couple of people about a year ago about this. Like, I, I think if I was designing Instapaper from scratch today, like, if I was designing a thing that would solve this problem from scratch today... I don't think I would do the text view. I think I would just save what was there on the page, like the full layout, because responsive design and and modern sensible design on most of the sites that I want to read, um, and especially now with content blockers existing, if there was a way to hook into that kind of system, responsive design really solved the, the problem pretty well most of the time. Like, These like back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, when I was designing Instapaper at first, the text view was necessary because no sites had mobile layouts. Responsive design didn't even exist yet; like the 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 spec wasn't even there. Like the media queries, I don't think even existed back then, or at least were not widely supported. Um, So like you couldn't do responsive design back then. Um, But that has really removed a lot of the need for things like um, Instapaper's text view and Safari's reader view. Yeah. Prior
0: to the iPhone, the only thing that had ever been done in web standards for mobile were completely different sites. WAP, I guess, was the big one. You know, WAP. I don't even know what it stood for. But it was so – the devices pre-iPhone were so primitive – Computationally and and displays were so small that it wasn't even feasible. Nobody had even really considered how would we make a dynamic layout that this you could just have one URL, one web page, and it would look this way on a big monitor, this way on a smaller monitor, and this way on a on a tiny little phone. Um, nobody had even
1: thought about that. All right, and that's why you still have sites today that have like mobile dot blah 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 URLs that don't right. redirect.
0: Well, and yeah, and that but that's a little different because they usually don't go to like a WAP type site, but. Still there and still annoying, but anyway, let me take a break here. I got to thank our first sponsor, and this is a good one. Um, so, so don't skip ahead. This is going to be a good uh, a good read. Um, it's the Brawer Group, B R A W E R. Now they sponsored during Fireball before. I think they actually, I think they actually sponsored the talk show too, um, and it was a great success. So they're back to announce. These are the guys behind an app called, this is a Mac app called Ubar just like a lowercase U, U-Bar U bar 3, and it implements a ton of suggestions from, he even says specifically from listeners at the talk show and readers at Daring Fireball, it's a doc replacement for the Mac. The purpose of U-Bar is to vastly increase your productivity. Pro users love it, but it's also, uh, you know, it's not just like a pro-only tool. You can definitely, you know, see how a normal person in your family would totally get into this. Um, and it uh, sort of, sort of modeled more on the windows taskbar so if you or anybody in your family has switched from windows and sort of doesn't like the ways that the mac os 10 dock uh isn't like the windows taskbar u bar is exactly the sort of thing you should look at um it looks good it's not ugly it's very very cool looking very beautiful it's pure os 10 um style design. And it's got, for power users, tons of shortcuts. You can do things like hold down control and you can see the CPU and RAM usage for any of the apps that are in there that are running. Hold down shift and you can quit any app or close any window from that app just by clicking it. Uh, apps that are unresponsive uh, get a red background so you can spot hanging apps immediately. You don't have to go and launch. So it's sort of like it's it's adding features from activity monitor right there in the in the taskbar. Uh, tons and tons of custom customization. Uh, you can set the size. There's different themes, dark and light, uh, exactly what you would think. You, you get the idea when you listen to the, you know the idea of this type of app. You know there's a lot of customization. Uh, you can put it on any side of any monitor, including the top. You can pin it to a corner. Uh, just uh, unbelievable stuff. So that, here's what you do. Go to ubarapp.com, and they have a four-week trial. You can download it start running it you get four weeks um and the cost is only 20 bucks so this is a great utility typical mac utility price 20 bucks but and i think they're actually crazy because i think 20 bucks is a great price but here's the deal this isn't my idea but they have a code retina gruber r-e-t-i-n-a then my last name retina gruber i don't know if that's a reference to retina graphics or my my eye problems or both but either way could go either way could go either way 50% 50% off. So you can get it for just 10 bucks. So you get four weeks to try it, and then it's 10 bucks to get it. And then this is the part that's amazing. One more thing. Uh, the developer of the app, his last name is Brower. I actually forget his first name. Let me look it up real quick. Seems like a shame. I, I don't know it. He has uh, the, the app and saw Edward, Edward Brower. So the app and software development, that's his primary. That's how he supports himself. That's He's a programmer. Um, but he has the most amazing hobby. His hobby is watchmaking. He makes real mechanical watches. Um, so he's actually launching a new timepiece right here on the show. It's called the Mirage. It is a limited edition of only 300 pieces, each with uh, an engraved number on the back. He has uh, sent one to me. Uh, uh, it's really, really nice. I, uh, I think my number is... Uh, I forget what number I got 104 or something like that. Um, really nice dial. beautiful typography. I mean, this is like a real serious watch. Uh, I think here's the, the price. Uh, 750 bucks. so we're talking about this is you know this is not like a joke. It looks like a $750 watch. It is really, really amazing, very very nice. It has um, a totally serious strap. It's made by a company I'm never going to pronounce this right Camille fournay in paris it's a uh lizard like alligator leather strap they make oem straps for actual serious watch companies like patek philippe uh and others it has a this single deployment clasp, single fold deployment clasp that only means something if you're a watch person but if you are a watch person you know what it means it's really really nice it is like a serious dress watch um but you know not so dressy that you couldn't wear it casually um So go to, for the watch, go to Brouwer, B-R-A-W-E-R, timepieces.com. And the same code works there, Retina Gruber. And you can get that watch for 40% off. So it's a $750 watch, but you can get it for 40% off using that code. Uh, Shipping is free in the USA and Canada. Uh, And it comes in a real watch box. If you've ever bought like a, Fancy watch, or like the even like the Apple Edition watches. You know that like you know thousand dollar ish watches supposed to come in a nice box. This thing comes in a really nice box. You, I, the thing that I can't believe. It's not that I can't believe that somebody made a nice watch. There's lots of nice watches out there. I just can't believe that this guy (laughs) designed and made it and did all this stuff and you know did all the the machining to actually machine out the stainless steel frame of the watch and everything as like his hobby. It's absolutely crazy <laughs> that this is like the second thing that the same guy does who makes this amazing U-Bar app. So my thanks to to them for the U-Bar, which is probably something an awful lot of you ought to go look at and maybe buy, and for the new Mirage watch. Uh, which probably isn't going to sell to a lot of you, but for those of you who are into watches, it's absolutely positively worth looking at. Also, it's not too big. I hate big watches. I don't know what I would say if it was real big, but it has a diameter of only 40 millimeters. So it's a perfectly standard, uh, not too big watch. A woman could get away with it. It would be like a nice big watch for a woman. Um, Totally normal size for men. Comes in three colors, white, blue, and black. So my thanks to them. Check them out. Is that the craziest sponsor? That might be one of the craziest sponsors I've ever had.
1: That is pretty impressive. <laughs> also, I want to give you all my French words to pronounce whenever I need that. <laughs> I have no idea if I pronounce that right. That's not <laughs> even that hard.
0: All right. On the ads. Here's the thing. I want to tell you why I think you were... Uh, here's the mistake I think you made with peace. And I feel guilty about this because I knew over the summer that you were working on this thing. And I I, I didn't test it until like the night before or something like that. And I feel bad that I didn't because i would have I would have called you out on the fact that it wasn't bl- whitelisting the deck automatically and in fact, I was confused because I could swear that the night before when I did install the beta i did the first thing I did was check Tearing fireball and I could swear that it did show the ad and then you told me that there's some flakiness when you first enable these things, and sometimes yeah. you have to restart and I think that's what I saw um I don't want to put words in your mouth, but here's what I think you were thinking. You were thinking I'm not, I don't A, I don't want to have a whole bunch of fiddly settings. So I don't want to have it some of a thing that says block block all ads, block most ads, block half ads, just block the worst ads. I'm just gonna say, you know, here, here's a switch, block ads. Um, and I think you were thinking I would be a hypocrite if I whitelisted the deck just because that's what my site is in. Um, so I'll do the thing that's not being a hypocrite and just include the deck, which is mine, which is sort of, um, I don't know, magnanimous. I don't know what the word is. I I think that by not whitelisting the deck, you are committing an entirely different form of hypocrisy, which is that um, all Everything is content uh, and everything that you publish from Marco.org is your are your, you're, you're standing behind. So by publishing ads from the deck, by sending them to your users, you're implicitly saying this is an ad that's worth your seeing and it's worth your device that you're accessing the site, downloading and rendering and putting on the page. Uh, so I feel like you, you painted yourself into by, by releasing peace with the deck not being included. You have two things. You've got a website that is implicitly saying, this is a thing, this ad is worth you seeing and is okay. And then you have this other thing, which is saying, this is something that should be blocked. And there's no way to square that circle.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's that was part of the problem is that this was... This was an unsolvable problem. You know, it was. I can. I could say that I no longer want any web ads to exist, and I can. I could leave the deck. I could quit the deck and remove them from my site. Um, I could. I could try to distinguish. I could try to differentiate. and I could say, well, I'm going to allow acceptable ads, <laughs> but we see the problems that causes. You know, when when other sites try that or when other blockers try that, we see that that's extremely messy and controversial. And, and I, that's, you know, I didn't want to be in that business and, you know, or I can, I can try to differentiate between, well, I'm going to block ads, but not trackers. And I, I said that's an ADP too. Like you can't really make that differentiation because if, if you want to block tracking, you have to block almost all ads. So it, you know, and, and trying to, trying to keep up the list of what belongs on the other side of that almost uh, is is very um, politically charged. It is uh, very subjective. It's very messy and arguable and vague as to what you know what kind of ad is okay, uh, what kind of ad is safe and is not a tracker. What is what is, what does tracking include? Um, there's it's just it's such a it's such a messy world of vague distinctions and impossible problems. And, the, and the, no, whatever decision you make, people are going to disagree with it. And so, actually, the safest, most defensible position that an ad blocker can take is to just block everything. Like, that, that is the most defensible position that I think that I, most of them can take. And they just have to then own what they actually are. And this, this is the part I had a problem with. Like, you can't just say, I'm going to block trackers and I'm going to serve only good. You have to hit some people in in the process of being effective, like s- some people have to lose, and some of them are going to be good people, like the deck. You know, we know all, all these people; like these are good people. But if you're saying I'm selling an ad blocker, it has to block the deck, and and it, it's weird. It, and if if you if you sell an ad blocker and you know about the deck and you know the deck is ads, and you whitelist it or you you explicitly like go and omit it from your database once it was already there. And you're selling people an ad blocker, then you're lying to your customers. That's why I don't think you should call it an ad blocker.
0: I think and I right.
1: Kind of but if you this. don't call it an ad blocker, nobody buys it. That's the problem. You know, it's <laughs> it's a terrible business.
0: I I think that I don't know. I don't I I don't know if that no one
1: would buy it. I mean, what did you? How did you? What did the marketing materials for Peace describe it as? It, it said Peace block ads and trackers powered by Ghostery, something like that. Um, or block block web ads and trackers
0: I would have said something to the effect of well I wouldn't use the word crappy but block crappy ads and trackers Uh, and think of you know put that off the top of my head I can't think of the way I would say that but it, that would be the gist of what I would get across in very few words. Block crappy ads and trackers, and then that lets you whitelist. And and there are like one of the most popular ones right now. Uh, and the one, if anybody wants my recommendation, right now the one I'm using is One Blocker. Uh, and yeah, by def- well, by default, One Blocker does not block the deck. Um, I've actually exchanged some emails with Ben Brooks, who's doing a lot of work at at the Brooks Report. Like, Really serious yeoman's work, especially if he's, you know, he, he's like restarting his iPhone in between testing these things just to sort of get it to his neutral estate
1: and clearing well, the good, cache. That's of- good, because as you said, like the system is buggy and it's, yeah. it's really hard to know for sure whether something's enabled or not. And sometimes the system will, like I had, to, I had to make a test URL that like on Pieces website, a test URL that would load and would try to redirect to something that piece blocked and then would detect whether the redirect succeeded or not. And notif- And so like I had this button in the app that would just test installation and it would like slide up a web view for a second and test something and slide it back down and have and tell you what happened. Um, but I, what it's I, very buggy. It's a very buggy system.
0: What I'm looking for in uh, uh, an ad blocker or a content blocker, whatever you want to call it for iOS, is I want one that is fast and noticeably improves the browsing experience, uh, you know, on my iPhone. Um uh, blocks as much like pernicious stuff, like the type of ads that like cover up, pop up, and full page. You know, block the the page I'm looking at. Um, block stuff like that. Uh, doesn't block the deck by default, and uh, that's it. And the the, the the problem is
1: that nobody agrees on where that line is. I agree.
0: I agree. And that's, you know, obviously that's gotta go. So one of the other ways to look at it is no, no ad blocker is going to be perfect. Absolutely not. And, and, and even if you could say right now at this moment, as I submit to the app store, I think it's as close to perfect as I can get it in terms of what it blocks and what it doesn't by next week, that's going to be different. Um, because some of the people you block are going to find workarounds, and some of the ones you don't might clean up their policies. It's it's totally dynamic. But I, what, I would, what I would suggest, and what I really think is possible, and what I think, for example, one blocker right now is evidence of, is that what you have to do is pick which side of perfection you're going to be on. Are you going to be, is your blocker going to be on the side of letting through some stuff that probably should be blocked? Or is it going to be on the side of erring on the side of blocking some stuff that shouldn't be blocked. And I think it's possible. I think it's possible to build a, an ad blocker or a content blocker, whatever you want to call it, that um, isn't over aggressive. And so therefore, errs on the side of maybe there will be some things that get through that, that you wish didn't get through, but that overall gives you a really fast browsing experience and blocks most of the stuff you want and doesn't punish people who are doing it the right way and are serving things that shouldn't be blocked. Um I think that's possible. I think one blocker is is the best proof of it today that it's, that it could be done. Um but the fact is that what's amazing to me is that in Ben Brooks testing and he's I think he's up to like 32 of these iOS content blockers that he's tracked. Uh in his testing one blocker isn't just fast, it's the fastest. I don't know where Peace was on that cuz he you know he's taken Peace out of that but um the only one that's faster It was is, it
1: was roughly in the middle when he still had it in.
0: The only one that's faster is some cr- crazy one that I think is sort of like the one you wrote this summer that just blocks all third-party JavaScript. There's one that makes that that is head and shoulders faster than anything, but it breaks half the internet. Like he, Ben Brooks, like he's I forget the name of it. It's got like a funny name too. But it uh, there's a whole bunch of like mainstream sites that just render as a white a white box.
1: No, I I actually I had that issue with uh, with my first one because when my my first version of of peace before I negotiated the deal with Ghostery, it literally just blocked all third party JavaScript. And the the funny thing is how well that works most of the time. It's called, like, it, I, it's called script scrap. <laughs> that's a wonderfully awkward name. <laughs> no, I mean like it, it that approach actually works the vast majority of the time. But, you know, the it's it's one of those things where like if the error rate like if if the pages it breaks if it breaks on 10% of pages, well that's actually very annoying in practice. Like that's that's too high of a breakage rate. And the reason I went with Ghostery instead was because it was the solution I found that had the that had the lowest rate of sites that broke. Like, things that actually just stopped working. Um, because, like, a lot of sites will tie in in weird ways uh, to, like, especially analytics packages and especially Adobe Omniture. Uh, that is one, like, Apple yeah. site breaks with, without yeah. that. A, a bunch of sites, like, the, like functionality actually stops if, yeah. if you don't have certain trackers enabled. And Ghostery actually keeps a database of that and, and builds it into their to their extension to, to try to, like, whitelist... Like to, to to try to whitelist things like that that are fairly innocent on certain sites that are required for them to work properly. Yeah, like, and they they maintain a list of sites that break with you know, for example, Omniture disabled, and that's automatically whitelisted by default. I forget what
0: it was that I couldn't. Um, there's a part of Apple's developer website that I couldn't get working, and I was like, "What the hell's going on?" Yep, was, and that's then why. I, and it just occurred to me, it was like. Oh, maybe I should whitelist this in ghostry and I did, and it worked. And I was like, "Oh man!" Of all the sites, I never thought that I would have to dick around in ghostry It was Apple.com. It's, it literally has no ads, and you know, unless you consider the entire website an ad, um you know, it has no ads that you would think of as web ads. But it actually breaks without it, and it was—I think it was exactly that Adobe Omniture, uh, whatever yeah. the hell that is.
1: Well, and that's—I I don't even know. I think it's some kind of analytics thing, but you know one of the one of the problems one of the reasons why we have such obscenely rampant and, and over the top tracking on the web is this this culture of data people where like every mm-hmm. like it is considered outrageous and obscene and and reckless if you run a website today that doesn't do very detailed analytics and behavioral tracking like if you if you have access to quote data and you're not collecting it, and you're not mining it and analyzing it for eyeballs and various other body parts, like, it is, like, that, you're considered, like, negligent, almost, in an owner of a website not doing all this tracking. Like, the, the standard industry wisdom and the pressure from everywhere in the industry is to track as much as you possibly can. And, and this is, and we can get into it here if you want, um, one of the issues with this that, that is still mostly under the radar is tracking happening inside of apps that can't be blocked by Safari content blockers? Yeah. No, definitely. Like um, Twitter is famous for like always pushing the boundaries of like, <laughs> like they 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 had this database of like something like over a thousand URL schemes, custom iOS app URL schemes that they that they would call can open URL uh, on the system API, and that would tell them which of these URL schemes were registered, and they could then derive which apps does each user have installed and they could tailor their ads and they could sell their ads. They could they could actually sell people the idea of we can show your Twitter ad to people who have this particular app installed. Like, it's crazy. And then and that you know, that was so egregious of a privacy violation that Apple severely restricted that in iOS nine and like they actually kind of broke it for for, for uses like that. Right. Um so, but in other a, words,
0: just to explain that, I I, yeah. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. But just for anybody who, who, if that went over your head, so the way sandboxing works on iOS, an app that plays by the rules and uses, you know, the te- passes the test that they do, that you're not using private APIs, can't really look outside at sandbox and look at the file system and see what's in your iPhone's slash applications folder. It, you can't do it. But what Twitter did, and I'm sure other people did, but Twitter, I guess, really went far, is when a Twitter custom got caught. when a custom app like if Instapaper has an Instapaper colon slash slash URL scheme, and then you know the idea of the URL scheme is hey that way another app can integrate with Instapaper, uh, and this was real, really common in the pre-sharing sheet days where you know apps would the only really way that apps could communicate with each, with each other one, you know Instapaper communicating with Tweetbot. Or something like that was through a URL scheme. So if, if Tweetbot was going to um, integrate with Instapaper, it used a URL scheme. Did it? I mean, you you know. Is that how Tweetbot used to integrate with Instapaper?
1: As far as I remember, yeah. I mean, yeah. almost all the all, all the Twitter clients integrated with right. Instapaper eventually.
0: And but through a custom URL scheme. But then the, to make a nice user experience, there was an API. So Twitter Tweetbot or whatever app you know, Twitterific, whoever would call it. If I send an Instapaper paper colon slash slash URL, is it going to be handled? Yes or no. And then if it's the answer is no, it's like, oh, well, they don't even have Instapaper installed. I won't even give them the option. So Twitter used it to survey whether any of a thousand apps were installed on the system and, and used it. And then they, of course, know your Twitter account because you're logged into Twitter. You're using Twitter.
1: Yep, And they would transmit that data back to Twitter and they would save it probably forever on your account in their right. ad analytics database. Like it, it was All this creepy stuff that was made possible by this relatively innocent intending uh, system API.
0: Yeah, and so that, but this—it's sort of a tangent, but it absolutely gets to something that is a false accusation against me, which is that in in my defense of, uh, I, I think the the problem that some people seem to have with my take on this is that I'm not an absolutist; that I don't feel like that, and and I feel like there's some people who who want to say that if you're going to block some ads, you have to block them all. And if you're going to whitelist some ads, you have to see them all. And I I don't s think that's bullshit. I think it's and I think it's provably bullshit because people are doing just what I'm suggesting, which is try to, you know, use whitelists and defaults for your ad blocker that uh, strike a middle ground and again, who defines that middle ground and whether different people have f- significantly different tastes on where that line is drawn absolutely I, who knows how it's going to shake out but I, I absolutely think that someone who wants to take the the absolutist all or nothing approach is is being stubbornly uh, idealistic i don't know what the word is but it's and, and they're fooling themselves um, but I, the the false accusation against me is that i'm somehow uh, because I'm in the bag for Apple and pro Apple. I'm in, on board with Apple destroying the, the open internet and taking us to a world where there's nothing but apps from the app store. <laughs> and that's false for a couple of reasons. Number one, my life's work is on a website and I don't have an app for it. There is no Daring Fireball app. Uh, and I, I still have no plans to make one. Um, my site is in Apple News. Uh, I haven't done anything related to it. I really don't even understand how Apple News works. Uh, I might, I might do something with their stuff. I, I haven't really looked at it yet. Uh, I, I, I would be. I would not be in favor of most people reading my site through Apple News. I'd, I'd, I'm not in favor of that. And lastly, I don't think I, I'm just as suspicious and concerned about the tracking that's going on in native apps as I am on the web.
1: Right, because native apps, like uh, the web, can the web can do a lot more egregious things. They can do a lot more cross-site tracking, like tracking between different sites by third parties. The web makes a lot more of that possible apps you're you're mostly i mean depending on what they've integrated but you're mostly in apps limited to the maker of the app tracking you themselves right you know and again there are there are some exceptions uh, like with third-party packages but for the most part that's what's going on and so you do have to worry about things like 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 the big the big social apps which again like when you're talking about if you want to block tracking you got to block social um, and all the social widgets that are, that are in all the sites, you have to block the fancy, rich, richly formatted Twitter embeds that people embed in blog posts. You would probably also have to block embedded YouTube players because that's owned by Google, a massive ad and tracking company. You know, like the, there's a lot you have to block if you want to block if you want to truly block tracking.
2: Yeah, and
0: um, if you just take a look, YouTube is a good example um, because it's so ubiquitous. I mean, it's you know, yeah. it's central to the modern web landscape but if you ever just do a view source on a page with a, a youtube embed and just start going down the rabbit hole of the iframe and and <laughs> what's going on there i mean it's, it's almost impossible to follow along but you can see that it is <laughs> nothing even vaguely resembling a video tag where the source pointing to a url <laughs> exactly uh it is you know it, it i'll bet like a, a single youtube embed would probably involve more Markup, let alone JavaScript, but just more markup than the entirety of like a typical daring fireball page.
1: Exactly. Yeah, but so, but you know, with with app tracking, you know, you're you're they can do more detailed tracking of you, but in a narrower scope. Like, yeah. you're not usually like if you just open up a random, you know, a random app. Like, if you're, you know, there's there's a new uh, game from the Crossy Road people, uh, like Shooty Skies or something today and i downloaded that knowing like you know what's the most they can really do here like i know ios is so sandboxed and everything like they're not gonna be able to get to all my other data they're not they're gonna be able to have like a unique identifier tied to me that they can use in you know 50 other apps that aren't even published by them and you know some other third-party thing can do it like
0: the crossy road
1: people have a new app uh yeah it's called shooty skies oh is it good i haven't launched it yet oh i mean i I was gonna play it uh in bed tonight <laughs> important it. planning.
0: Play it in the second half of the talk show.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll play during all your ad reads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I always pay attention to podcast ad reads. <clears throat> Never skip them. So,
0: <laughs> is it nice? Do you like? Do you enjoy uh, not having to do them? Because you do them on ATP.
1: Yeah, this was this was great. Like it's great to just show up to a podcast and just talk and not have to worry about like all right, got to get the sponsors ready, got to make sure I have all the scripts for all of them and if I don't I got to write some and, and I got to, you know, review them and everything. Is there ever
0: been any discussion about letting Casey do some of them?
1: I don't think we've ever actually talked about it. I think he's kind of can assumed. Yeah, he he's he's so much nicer than me. John, you should do it.
0: <laughs> but John does the toaster ones, which is yeah. is the greatest single greatest ad campaign, in my opinion, in podcast history, is. Yeah, the,
1: there's a. It's a good one this week too. This this is a toaster week this week. It's a good one. <laughs> it's, it's a really good one. Uh, it's Cards Against Humanity's campaign.
0: And for any of you, I, I'm guessing that it's an enormous number of the people listening to this episode listen to ATP as well. But for those of you who don't on on the Accidental Tech Podcast, there's a y- year long, maybe over a year long. It's this whole calendar year. It's it's,
1: so it's almost over.
0: It, from Cards Against Humanity and the entirety of the ad campaign, there is absolutely no talking points about the game itself. It's, they just send John Syracuse a, a toaster oven every, every time an ad is coming up. Yeah, once a month. Once a month, they send him a toaster oven, and he, <laughs> he just tears into it on air.
1: Yeah, it's like the 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 entire role of the ad is for John to just review a, a new toaster oven every month.
0: Talk about the dials, talk about, yep. you know, how well it works, the whether, knob you know, feel, you know, what egregious design mistakes that they've made.
1: Yeah. Turns out there's a lot of really badly designed toaster ovens out there. <laughs>
0: and he takes it totally serious, as of course he does. It's fantastic. But anyway, uh, it's it must be nice. I don't know. I enjoy it when I'm a guest on somebody else's podcast as well. Yeah, it is quite nice. Even though I do enjoy, I actually enjoy doing these reads though. I've gotten, I think I've gotten better at it and I enjoy it because I've gotten to the point now where I feel like it's a game where I'm trying to keep people from hitting the 30 second skip. And I really, <laughs> and if you do, if, you know, uh, you know, it is what it is. And you know, it, it's funny. It's because that's ad blocking, right? I mean, it ties into it. The 30 it's very second, similar. Yeah, it,
1: it's, it's like, the, it's not quite the same, but it's very similar. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the ballpark for sure.
0: Uh, I actually saw somebody on Twitter in, in, at, at, at peak peace controversy. I still think that's so funny. That, I think it was such a good name for a blocker. Um, uh, and I think it's so funny that the way that it played out was so, <laughs> so unpeaceful for you. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I saw somebody who, who tweeted, uh, something to the effect of, um, it's actually a pretty clever idea that somebody who writes a podcast client could, um, you know, t- for any given episode of a show, if you tracked people's use of thirty-second skip, you could probably very easily pinpoint where the um, the sponsor breaks are in the episode.
1: Right, and and you know, this is like I thought of this feature two years ago. Like I, I think everybody who has made a podcast app has thought of this feature, especially once Amazon launched their uh, shared highlights for Kindles, like, cause it's very similar to that. Hmm. You know, it's like you, you kind of track like what people highlight and then things that get highlighted a lot, you can say are important and you can default to highlight them. Well, you could in the podcast app, yeah, you could track what's being skipped and sections of a podcast that are skipped a lot. You can have an option to just automatically just skip them. And first of all, you know, it would be hard to make that work very well in a way that wouldn't annoy people um, and that would that would be obvious what 's happening, but second of all, I think like i 've talked to other other podcast app makers and mentioned this before, and everyone always says the same thing, the same thing I thought, which is i don 't want to do that to podcasting because I know like that would that would by nature hurt podcasting, and i don 't want to do that
0: i you know and i I feel like the, i I feel like the other thing is that it's it 's so respectful you know it's just time you know and it's you know i i i've gone to four on some of these summer episodes just because i've fallen way behind a weekly schedule but my episodes are very long and so i absolutely i do stick to never more than one and a half hour um which i feel like is pretty fair and compares extremely favorably to uh terrestrial radio
1: Oh my god! Yeah, and not even, not even close.
0: And even compares, I think, very well to uh, like the Howard Stern show on Sirius. Like Amy, Amy's a huge uh, uh, Howard Stern fan, and uh, she's still annoyed by the fact that the whole thing that pitched her on Sirius in the first place is that it was commercial free, and and they were like, except for Howard Stern, because we can sell a lot of very expensive <laughs> ads on his show. Um, you know, I, I think in the history of, well, they aren't very expensive. I've bought them before. Well, but from their perspective, in the aggregate they are. I'm not saying yeah. each spot is, but I think that it I don't think that they could do I don't think they could I don't think they could pay his salary if it wasn't for that. I don't
1: know. Uh yeah. I, you disagree? You think you could go you think I dis- paid less for a live read on his show than what you and I charge for live reads on our shows right now. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: amazing. And you got you got uh Howard to actually read it. Yeah, yeah, it's a live read. Like that's was, that's why it's valuable. <laughs> it was really great. It was a really cool thing. Um, but anyway, I just feel like that the again, it's negotiation, and I'm sure there are people out there listening right now who, even though I told them not to hit the 30 second thing during the Brower thing before, and they're probably going to hit it on some of the ones that I'm about to do, um, and that's okay. I mean, you know, it's my job, but I I feel like I've gotten better enough at doing this, and I feel like I'm still attracting a. a interesting enough group of sponsors that it's a fun game for me when i do them to try to you know you know i i'm i'm and when i'm doing them i'm imagining a a listener with his thumb hovering over the 30 second skip and i'm trying to keep him from pressing it or at least only having him press it once yeah and i still yeah, I think mean, there's some value in it like for example i will i'll break right into one right now and here's one that i'll bet somebody i bet a fair number of people will 30 seconds skip because they are here almost every single week. It's our friends at Fracture. Um, our, now Fracture, they're the people who print your photos on glass. Um, they sponsor the show all the time. And the reason they keep coming back is because you guys out there keep buying pictures from them. Uh, so you're probably familiar with them really high quality printing. They print on the back of the glass. You send them a photo, they print it on the back of the glass. It's right there on the glass, not like a piece of paper stuck to it. It's not a frame where there's a piece of paper behind glass. It's right there on the glass. Really, really nice. The best way to get actual analog versions of your photos that I've ever seen, because there's no work involved on your part. You just upload the photo and then it comes back to you and it's all nice and ready to go. Um, they do have, they actually have a special message that they want me to get across. It's only October 1st as I record. Um, clearly a big part of Fracture's uh, market is gifts, people buying photos for, for gifts, and obviously the holiday season's coming up. October 1st does not sound like it's close to the holidays. Nobody's, uh, I don't think, even though the holiday decorations seem to go up earlier and earlier in retail, usually people will at least wait till Halloween. Yeah, we're uh, still
1: in pumpkin spice season right now. Yeah,
0: exactly. You got to wait till pumpkin spice goes away. Um, but Fracture wants me to remind you that they do get backed up at the holidays, and so this might be a good way to just knock out a couple of your Christmas gifts really, really early, and not worry about cutting it close and getting caught behind because it, at by the end of December they actually can't keep up, and you can't do it last minute and get it in time for Christmas because they're so so busy. Um, so think about it. Think about the people who you might want to give a fracture, uh, image to for the holidays and get it over with now, just do it and you'll feel better. You'll know you have, you know, somewhere sitting in your office, you've got these boxes packed up. Uh, you've already got some of your Christmas gifts knocked out, ready to go. Really is a good gift. We do it every year. I I can't even imagine until fracture isn't even around anymore. I can't imagine that a holiday season is going to go by where we don't get some of these for some of the people in our family. Um, Really, really great stuff. Where do you go to find out more? Uh, their website is fractureme.com. And their URL code is, uh, I think, Daring Fireball. And if you've never ordered from them before, use that code, Daring Fireball, and you will save 15% off uh, your listener's first order. And if you're listening to this show, if you're like a Marco fan, you could use the code ATP and you'll save the same amount and you'll, you'll, Give the the mojo to uh, to the accidental tech podcast ATP fifteen ATP fifteen. <laughs> Thanks. Wow. Uh,
1: well, did that change? It
0: used to be ATP, right? Or did they? I think
1: change? I think in twenty fifteen, I think it became ATP fifteen. Yeah. Anyway, you could. They've do been long term. You know, they were sponsors before twenty fifteen. They've been long term sponsors.
0: Anyway, it's all good. uh They're a great company with a truly, truly great product. And, it, you know, if you've ever wondered why in the world do they keep sponsoring these podcasts, I swear it's because people keep buying the Fractures from them. So, so keep it up. And I really, yeah. really can't say enough
1: about it. I just bought one as a gift a couple of weeks ago, and I'm about to do another one. They they make great gifts.
0: Yeah. You get you do get, because most of the people in your family probably don't listen to your podcast, just like mine. No, uh, so they, do. they have no idea. And when they see them, they there really is like a whole like, well, how in the world did you make this? And you just say, you know, you could tell them. Just tell them, you know, go to Fractured me.com
1: yeah no i i i have severe gift giving anxiety every year um and and to have it to have an easy solution that's kind of like a go-to thing like if i don't know what to get somebody in my family i can get them a cute picture of you know my grandparents or my kid or something you know and that works out well um yeah i I don't know you i i'm always envious of your ad reads you and hello internet i think do the best live reads i've heard
0: those bastards those guys they
1: aren't they frustratingly good yeah You know what,
0: that actually, because again, I I do, I don't like, I listen to yours, you know, because I want to see how you do it. You know, like it's a challenge. That's
1: why I listen to (laughs) it. It's just, it's,
0: you know, like, okay, it's Squarespace again. What are you going to do? You know, it's a challenge. It it is because I, I want to keep it fresh for people who aren't skipping. I don't want to say the same thing every time. Uh, The Hello Internet guys. God, they're freaking really good at it.
1: Yeah, like it's frustrating enough that their podcast is so good in general, but th- th- that they also just kill it on the ad reads and that they record like I've always wanted to try recording the ads separately from the show and dropping them in afterwards um, because I've I, about I it. don't like doing it during the show because it, it makes me pay attention to something else during the show rather than what my co-hosts are talking about. And so, like, I always have in my mind, oh, I got to do another ad now, and I, oh, what's it going to be? Load it up on screen, maybe read it a couple times first, like, and I'm having to do all that as Casey or John are talking about something that, and so I'm not listening to them. I'm looking at an ad, and so I feel like that makes the show worse. But I, I don't know, I, I, I haven't figured out how to do it well yet. Maybe I'll have to try it sometime and see. I've, I've
0: I've been given serious thought to that exact same thing, and I might play with it because I feel like it's the sort of thing I can, I can play with and. It's not irrevocable, you know?
1: And, yeah. But I want to I, I feel like it. you do need some kind of sound effect to start and end it. And I, I, don't, I don't have one of those ready, and that's one of the reasons I haven't done it yet. Because, like, if you just try to drop it in... You sound different, and everyone notices. Like it yeah. is it, very obvious. Like this was recorded at a different time. Your voice is more or less tired and raspy than it was. in the, like in the surrounding parts of the show, you can hear maybe the room sounds a little bit different. Maybe it's like a little bit more echoey, or you were using the mic a little bit further away, or a different mic that you were using two weeks ago, or something. Like you can always tell when, it, when it's when it was recorded at a different time. Have so you ever important. have you ever
0: noticed me? I've done that a few times. Have you ever noticed? Yeah, every time. Yeah, I bet you
1: did. I notice every time. Yeah. And I listen. I listen to podcasts on terrible headphones, um, and I notice every time. But that's just me. I'm a nerd. But
0: yeah, if I switch to that when I, when I have done it, it's because something has changed. Either I've made a terrible mistake, yeah. or somebody else has made a mistake, and uh, or or it, I didn't get it in time. You know that there was some kind of communication problem, and it's like crap. I told. Marco, we're gonna record at nine, I don't have it. I'll just fill it in later. And you know, it and then when I've done that in the past, I've tried to fake it as best we can to do it. And if it doesn't come out perfectly, so what? If I were to switch, I would switch to something where it's obvious and it's you know, there's a little, you know, sound effect or something.
1: A jingle or a sound, yeah, something like that. Because I I really do think it would like one of the reasons like I've I've always been interested in the idea of trying an ad-free show. Um, But ATP is so big now and and it's not just me that I like, you know, I'm I'm willing to gamble with large amounts of money of potential future income, but I can't make that decision for two other people alone. You know this. And so I don't want to like rock the boat there. But one of the reasons I was motivated to even consider rocking the boat there is because I don't like doing the ads in line because I am afraid of the attention it's taking away of my attention it's taking away from the conversation. And I, th- I think that makes it worse. So I should try that. I, I got to figure out what sounds to bookend it with and just try it. Um, and, and I also like I, I heavily edit the ad reads because see this is why this is why you frustrate me <laughs> because I try to cap my ad reads to three minutes a- and ideally it's you know it's it's at least one and a half and it's at most three minutes and I and if I I almost always end up running way over that I'll usually I'll usually do it on the live show i usually do a four-minute ad read. And then in the edit, I edit it down to fit three. And I still feel like I'm not saying everything I wanted to say in the read. Meanwhile, you come in here, and you talk at like one mile an hour during your ad reads, <laughs> and you manage to say everything that you need to say, and they're not longer than three minutes usually. Like, they're not that much longer or shorter than mine. So you manage to somehow say way more with way fewer words in the same amount of time, and yours sounds more relaxed and more natural, and mine sounds kind of stressed out because I'm trying to cram it all in in three minutes. It's kind of how we write, I guess. Yeah,
0: maybe. Mine were brutal at first. They were really bad. I used to get... (laughs) And I didn't get emails complaining about it. I got emails, uh, very sympathetic emails. Because even though, when I I first started doing the show on my own uh, without uh, Dan Benjamin, and it was you know obviously that was like my Marco moment where I really angered the internet. The people who were angry weren't refused to listen so they weren't listening and sending me hate mail about how bad the show was they weren't even listening and they were just you didn't even get the hate listeners I, had, I got some but i think most of them were just didn't They'd, i really didn't get a lot of that um i think they just went right to itunes and wrote terrible one-star reviews and they were done the people who listened were people who were still enjoying it and they were very sympathetic and they were but it was sort of like the sort of email i think that you get when you know you come down it was like this it was exactly like the email i got when uh i talked about the stuff that's happened with my eye and you get these really nice emails from people saying how sorry they are <laughs> and they have I, they have all my sympathy and they're like we're well, really sorry about the way you're doing these ad reads it's it's terrible it was like i you know like i had an affliction
1: <laughs> yeah, but you, you picked it up pretty quickly. I mean, I like, yeah, those first few were definitely rough. But I think by, like, the you know, fifth or sixth episode, you, you were pretty much in a groove.
0: Yeah. Um, well, if there's anything I did wrong, and I'm not a big fan of, like, I read that, like, the guy, the the Noah, whatever his name is, has taken over the Daily Show. Like, he did, like, a whole week or so of test shows, shows that are never going to air. Mm. But real shows. They do shows. I understand why you do that. And, it, you know, hosting a TV show that's as tight as the Daily Show really does have to be rehearsed. Um, but you can't rehearse the whole episode because every day it's that day's news. So you have to get good at it. But if there's anything that that I should have rehearsed and thrown away, I should have done sponsor reads instead of doing them. I should have just, record, you know, not for episodes. I should have recorded some uh, and enforced myself to listen to them and do it. Because it, it didn't take too long. It only took a couple of weeks before I got at least okay at it. and I, So I could have just skipped the point where I was really, really terrible
1: at it. Well, yeah, but that was that was part of the learning process. Yeah. You know, it, it, you wouldn't have learned it necessarily. I, I don't
0: know. Anyway, the thing that really got me was that on the last episode of Hello Internet, when Brady did the the fracture one, <sighs> and it was that he would sent a picture to CGP Grey, sent a fracture to them to him of uh, what was it, the Jamaican rat, one of the two, two animals that he's been obsessed with lately. Yeah,
1: uh, no, the hen, the the hen. <laughs> yeah, the or other one. Yeah, it's the, called, the hen the bird. The, uh, yeah, the official but, bird of Hello Internet.
0: Right, but se- had sent him a picture uh, that related to an entire huge segment of the show that had already been gone. So it was it just had this beautiful serendipity and and really made it feel like it was uh, a part of the show. Again, like I said, ads are content. Part of the content of what you're serving is the ads. It's not something separate. And the Hello Internet, the way they do
1: it, it 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 really does feel like part of the show. Ah, those guys are so frustrating. They and like they have like they, they mentioned their numbers on the last show. They have they have way bigger listener bases than we do, too. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's with good reason because their show is awesome. And it's like people can enjoy that show without being huge tech nerds. Like our shows, you pretty much have to be a huge Apple nerd to, to really get much out of our shows. Uh but their show is way more accessible. And it really like they, they joke about a uh, long time ago, they had a discussion about the two dudes talking podcast format, which is very common, uh, especially two dudes talking loosely about tech matters. Um, but I, I think what makes their show so great is that yes, there are a lot of two dudes talking shows, but they really perfected that format. Like it, like to have these two specific people talking about whatever they talk about. Like they have amazing host chemistry between the two of them, and they're both amazing characters like they're they're incredibly amusing to listen to and they play off each other well and it's very nicely edited so you you have this combination of just like no wonder it's so popular because they're really good at it and it's a really good combination to begin with
0: yeah they also both have good
1: voices yeah which you really can't help um and you know what are you gonna do? but well, that's one thing that I love about podcasting though I, I this whole episode's gonna be frustrating for like half the listeners who want us to talk about whatever Apple news happened this week um, but <laughs> one thing I love about podcasting like when I was a kid, I used to i think a lot of people did this who were especially who were nerds like me. Uh, I used to record fake radio shows with my friends, which is basically like us talking into a cassette recorder mm-hmm. um as if we were on the radio and never listening back to it or listening back once and then that would be it. Um, like I we'd make these fake like I always wanted to be a radio DJ. And the reality is a that is a terrible business. Like <laughs> the business of being an actual radio DJ is horrible. So that's problem number 1. Problem number 2 is I was never going to be a DJ. I don't have the right voice. I don't speak well enough. I certainly don't have the background or the opportunity to become a DJ or the training like you know if there was any training, like I was never going to be a DJ. I, I just I don't have the voice for it. I don't have the the skills for it. I'm just not cut out for that job. In the same way I'm not cut out to be like, you know, a football player. Like I'm just that's just I don't have I'm not the person for that. I, I'm not I'm not made for that. But with podcasting, uh it's it's really Quite a meritocracy, in that like one of the beauties of this medium is that you don't need to attract the wide audience that you know TV and radio people do normally uh, with like the locality issues and everything. With this, with podcasting, even people who talk sloppily and have mediocre voices like me can. My job is podcasting. I I talk on a version of the radio for a living, and the the idea that like. I'm fulfilling this childhood dream, this thing I've always wanted to do that I really am not qualified to do. Uh but it just happens to work out better in this medium. Like that is amazing to me. And and as a listener of podcasts, as a massive listener of podcasts, I I love listening to other shows that are also made by amateurs like me that are just talking about interesting stuff. And that's something I like I I, ne- I all the like the big like public radio podcasts, I don't listen to almost any of them. Uh, I, because there's so much else going on that I want to listen to. I don't have time for them because there's so much else that's made by amateurs and people like me that I'm much more interested in. That's much more narrowly focused than like, here's a story I'm going to tell you about something interesting that happened. You know, like I don't, I don't need that. I, I have my, my, all my time is filled up with people talking about more narrow interests that I, that I like better.
0: I totally agree. Um, but it, it's, it still makes me jealous when I hear the professionalism of hello internet
1: yeah it is it is frustrating when people are really good podcasters who also have really good voices and production and speak well
0: (laughs) they're such they're two such interesting characters as well and exactly i think they're very honest i don't think that they've made up personas i think they're just being themselves but they're you know they both seem like very very nice very nice fellows absolutely yeah and like you know like gray is obviously the straight guy you know he's the uh you know, he's the more logical and doesn't come up with wacky ideas thing, but then he's got the crazy tick, like, that always comes up where he, when he flies, he just, he books a standby ticket and will wait weeks and weeks and weeks with not <laughs> knowing when he's gonna fly, which is crazy!
1: Yeah, that that like, that's why that show is so great, because, like, you have these, these great, interesting people who, and, and, like, and the fact that Brady can, like, tease that out of him, and then hit him over the head with it constantly like they they're able to push each other's buttons extremely well as well right like it it is it is oh it's so good yeah it's a really good show
0: so anybody who hasn't listened to it, go listen to it, but you yeah, know they're they're well beyond like you said they're well beyond our the size of our audiences
1: we should have them talk about us for an hour yeah deservedly
0: so the funny thing was that they did a thing too they've done a thing which is uh which is actually interesting i I've, I've been thinking it's funny that you bring it up because I was going to bring it up so if anybody out there do um uh, they, they did a thing where they solicited for the listeners of their show to write to them and tell them if they listen to the show while doing interesting things. Like, what is the context you know something beyond just you know i listen to the show when i drive to work you know and there's people who are like uh, there's like a guy who's like a surgeon he, d- he does like surgery on like mice brains because he's studying you know the effects you know some kind of scientist and they put the mice through a study and then he perform surgery on their brain to see their effect so while he's doing this he lists one of the things he does he listens to podcasts and he listens to their show well that's an interesting thing um and they had uh they had uh, a guy who who mans the uh, the ladder. I don't know what you call it—the steps that, like Air Force One, like when Air Force One lands, he he's the guy who like puts the ladder up there where the president comes down.
1: Yeah, the stair car, right?
0: Yeah, the stair car. Uh, listens to their show while he does you know and 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 they even like said like and just to make sure this guy doesn't get into trouble he's very very clear he does this like in the you know like you have to stand here and wait for 4 hours for the right. president to come out he's, he's not waiting. he's not listening while the president might be <laughs> coming down the steps he's you know he's paying attention uh and doing his job but it's it's obviously it's a job with a lot of waiting involved because they you know the president shows up when the president shows up the president you know isn't you know running on a clock what an interesting job, though, and to think that that guy, you know, is, is alleviating the tedium of the waiting part of his job or while he's off duty or whatever uh, by listening to their show. So anybody, I would, I would be interested to know the same thing, if there are interesting contexts where people listen to the talk show. Uh, so you can, you know, just email them to me and maybe I'll, I'll read some of them uh, in a future episode. I don't know anything about my audience. Like you said, like the the you know the idea of you got it. You have to hook up the data and collect all the analytics for everything. Oh I, yeah, I I, I don't want to know. I, I do like knowing what's popular. I like to try to you know I, I try to look at the stats and mint and just to see if an article is unusually popular. Um, and I I like to see. Um, actually, it's not really tra- audience tracking though. No. It's you know, I like to see referral tracking and see if I'm getting an unusual amount of traffic from some other popular place or site or tweet you know um but in terms of like knowing things about the audience i i don't you know i don't i don't want to know
1: that yeah well that's like even even like the checking of the mint and everything like uh back when i wrote the the uh (laughs) my previous controversy when (laughs) the uh the apple functional high ground thing um after that went crazy i realized that I like. There was a day where, like, I I just turned off analytics for the site during that because I was just kind of like, I don't, I don't want to be motivated by this anymore. And it's kind of like if you if you've ever gone on vacation, and and you you stop checking Twitter for a while, and then you have such a massive pileup that you can't keep up, and you just hit scroll to top, and you realize like, oh, I didn't read Twitter for like three or four days, and I missed nothing of importance. Um, then it's kind of eye opening. Well, I had a similar kind of thing with with analytics on my website where I ran uh first mint for a while and also I ran uh, Google analytics for a while and and uh and eventually I realized uh when I turned it off for a little while after the in the wake of all that drama I was I just was like I want some some peace and quiet um <laughs> I turned it off for a while and I realized I didn't miss it at all and and part of that is a luxury that we have that you know we don't need to really know our day-to-day page views the deck uh bills in advance for page views, basically. And so we are paid a flat rate by the deck based on the general amount of traffic that we tend to have gotten over the last, you know, years or whatever. Like, my rate for the deck hasn't changed in years. Um, and because my traffic is, you know, about the same. And so, you know, it's, it isn't... If I write something that gets all of a sudden a million page views out of the blue, I'm not going to see another dime for that. Yeah. And the deck has pre-sold the the ads for that, and so they aren't seeing another dime for it. And, you know, that's just... So I so we have no incentive to like temporarily juice page views or or write things that are going to de- get temporary traffic really, yeah. and uh, and so the only reason I would really need to run web analytics of any kind is what you said is like for me to know like oh well, where's traffic coming from uh, and where you know what what do I write that gets meaningful numbers compared to anything else I write and, and what I realized was that that information was not beneficial to my life or my work. Uh, it, it it was, all it was doing was like being another vanity metric to check. And the reality is Twitter is that vanity metric now anyway. And I should probably stop checking that as well, but I still do. Like I will check the number of retweets that like whenever I write a blog post, I, I tweet about it also. So I'll check like the number of retweets that got. And I'll, I have some idea like, Oh, well this one got, you know, two and this one got 40. So obviously that resonated with more people. But the actual web- adverti- or web tracking at uh, that level for for whatever reason I've decided that's no longer a thing that that I need to care about, and so I don't run any yeah,
0: I like to know some of the user agent stuff, and i can i i I could get this out of my server logs it's just that and, and that's the one thing i' I've been talking about getting rid of google analytics I'm going to i mean i don't, it's it's seriously just a matter of days that I just unhook it. I probably should just do it tomorrow um and mainly because I think that it's privacy invasive, and I I actually think that it's you know wrong of me to to be using Google Analytics, and it they have a very opaque privacy policy that I, that as I've read it, and I've done this over the I've been using Google Analytics for years, and there was a whole year or two period where I stopped using it, and I missed some data like what percentage of my users are using which browser and what percentage of them are on ios versus you know mac os versus other operating systems and there's ways to get that without using analytics but google just re-hooking up google analytics was the easiest way to do it and then I, it felt bad because a lot of my long-term stats were entirely out of whack because i had this like 14 month period where i'd shut it off um but I've read their private, the privacy issue is the main thing that makes me want to shut it off above and beyond anything else is that I can't shake the suspicion that Google is using the cookies they said for Google Analytics to track the people who read Daring Fireball across the web and using it for advertising, even though I don't use any Google advertising. And if you read their privacy policy, it's, impo- to me at least, it's like, to me, it's like reading a foreign language. And it's the way that I'm I'm amazed and impressed by attorneys who, who write, the contracts that run the whole world because I, I think I'm a good reader. I've always tested it high in terms of reading comprehension. I read most, most contracts and I, I, it might as well be written in a foreign language. I don't understand anything. I don't understand what is going on. Um, and Google's privacy policy for analytics is to me that type of privacy policy. I, I understand what each of the words mean. And in the aggregate, I have no idea what it means. And I've come to the conclusion that if you don't understand what a privacy policy means, you sh- your worst assumptions are probably right. <laughs> right.
1: No, and and you know you're right that you know, by by having Google Analytics on your site, you are selling your visitors' data to Google without their knowledge, right. and it's one of those things like it's kind of uncomfortable, like you know, like a lot of the things in in web publishing and advertising. If you actually face it if you actually like think about all the ramifications of that and you face the truth of that and you face the reality of that it is uncomfortable and 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 you have to you know you have to weigh this decision of like you know do i keep using this for the utility it provides uh or do i take a principled stand and 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 accept the cost of that stand right
0: so google analytics gives you information like how many people are in what country and even like within the u.s like what state like how many you know and and unsurprisingly you know my site is largely u.s a lot of people in the uk a lot of people in germany i think germany has always been the third country but you're already down at a very low percentage and then everybody else is spread around the world and then within the u.s tons of people on the northeast coast most of them in california and most of them in california largely centered in the northern part of california um you know it's exactly who you think i don't need google analytics to tell me that though and I find it weird, and I just wonder, how the hell did they know that? And I know there's ways to to go back from IP addresses and stuff like that, and but I just can't help but worry that part of it is that if you're logged into Google from Gmail and then you go over to a separate tab and you're at Daring Fireball, that they're, they're saying, oh, we know Marco lives in New York because uh, we know everything about Marco, and we've already got a cookie on this system that's right there that does this.
1: Right, and it doesn't take much to uniquely identify somebody between sites on the web. Like, you can, just by analyzing some very basic stuff about the, the requests they make, even if they block almost every kind of ad, you know, if, if they come to your site a couple times, and if they, you know, you can, you can just kind of match, even if their IP changes, you can just match, like, somebody's approximate zip code by using IP Lookup, um, and match that with, like, the request headers that their browser send. Which includes like the browser's version, like the exact version, the OS exact version, stuff like that. Maybe sometimes, like if it has certain plugins, then the plugin version, like flat, like Flash or Java, like it'll, those are all in the in the in the headers that that sends on every request. So, if you just take a couple of those things, a couple of those data points, you can uniquely identify people surprisingly quickly, yeah. like with only two or three different data points of that kind of set. So, you really it is it is very much like if you give them an inch, they take a foot, like. You have to be very careful what you allow uh, on your site if you want to actually be be protective of people's privacy. And you have to be aware as a visitor that you know you might think you're, that you have more privacy, but in reality, you are inadvertently leaking data all over the place to everybody who's willing to capture it. And yeah. it's and you might not care. Most people don't think about it, and they they might not care if you told them. But uh, and especially young people tend not to care. But uh, certainly. If you are privacy minded, you have to be incredibly wary of what you let in because you know they can they can do so much with so little. Um, if you go, if you are logged into Google
0: Analytics, I, I was here, and and you go to the bottom, I don't maybe they have a separate one, I don't know, but you, when you go and hit Privacy Policy, it just takes you to Google's main Privacy Policy, which is for um you know everything that Google does. Uh, so it's just I. I I don't even know if that's what they mean. You know, like what I want to know as a publisher is what are my readers being exposed to here, and what's being tracked about them. And it, it doesn't seem like there's any good way to get that answer, or if there is, I, I I'll be damned if I can find it. And to me, that's just worrisome. So I don't know. I I really got to get rid of it. Um, I've, I'm sure there's other ways I can do it. I don't know. I'm I, there's this the system I'm thinking about installing is called P-P-Wik, Piwik. Piwik. P i w i k. Yeah, that's um, that's a pretty common one. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what information is in But the gist of, of PyWik, whatever it's called, is that it's like Mint in that it's locally stored. And so I would be running it, my own copy of it on my server, storing my copy of the stats in my SQL database. And it's there are no cookies that are shared across other sites or anything like that that would track you. All it is is knowledge of what people coming to my site do. So there'd be nothing privacy invasive about it at all other than the fact that you are a person who is reading my site which uh, you know i obviously do know some of the stats though that from uh, i don't know what piwick has but some of the stuff like that is interesting and i will miss but i don't miss it enough to keep using google analytics is like the number of people using which browser and how many people use which operating system and stuff like that
1: Right. And some of that you can get out of the user agent, but a lot of it you, you have to use JavaScript to get. It's like things like, like you know, whether it has a retina screen or not. Right. But I, I just think so much of that stuff is just becoming so irrelevant. You know, like like what what would you actually do with that information? You know, most of it is not that important.
0: Well, and the other fact is that I don't like, like I truly do believe, like I've, I'll say it over and over again. If there's a theme of this episode, it's that everything you publish on your site is content and counts. And so I don't want JavaScript executing that's getting the bounds of the screen. It's a waste of CPU time, you know. And, you know, I get all Syracuse here, but I'm sure it doesn't take very long for a little bit of JavaScript to just figure out what the current screen size is and send it back. Um, But every little thing you do that tests like that adds up to something, and all of a sudden you've got, you know, five seconds of load time for ads and trackers and analytics. You know, and each little step of it is, you know, a tenth of a second. Exactly. So anyway, gotta get rid of Google Analytics. Um I might as well take a break right here and talk about our next sponsor. It is is a new sponsor, first time sponsor of the show. They're called Just Works. J U S T W O R K S. Um running payroll, filing W-2s, negotiating healthcare prices. I'm already asleep. This sounds terrible. These are all the things that if you're a small business owner uh, that you could be doing instead of listening to the talk show. Uh, Sounds like a lot of fun, right? Well, you could instead just let JustWorks take care of that stuff for you. JustWorks helps businesses take care of all that type of Let's face it, crap. Benefits, payroll, HR. Not that it's crap that it doesn't matter. I think most of your employees think payroll is very important, but the bookkeeping aspects of it, actually doing the work of making it run and making all the books add up and making sure everybody gets paid what they're supposed to be paid. Busy work, right? You're oh, not in it's a, so bad. You're not in a business of running payroll. You're in the business of whatever your business is. So check them out. Their website is just works.com. Uh they help businesses take care of this stuff. They, they do it all for you. Running a successful business is hard enough doing the actual business of whatever your business is, whatever it is, making apps, making websites, selling coffee, whatever it could be. Uh, but all those little details of HR and payroll and stuff like that can make it feel overwhelming. It's probably the sort of thing that keeps a lot of people from even starting a small business in the first place because you just think, well, who the hell am I, you know, I can't afford to hire somebody to do this. Well, JustWorks, uh, it's just easy and intuitive software, very, very affordable, great prices. It's not like you're hiring somebody to do this for you. You're paying a little internet service to do it and take care of it. Uh, So if you run a business and you have payroll, you have benefits, co- compliance with HR, stuff like that, Go check them out at JustWorks.com. Take it all off your shoulders, relax, listen to more podcasts. And you can use this code very easy. This is a nice code, TTS, The Talk Show, three-letter code, when you sign up and you'll save 10% off your first year of service at JustWorks.com. So if you run a business, go check them out. You're you're just wasting your time if you don't. Probably a good sponsor for the show. I bet there's a lot of people who run companies that have to do stuff like that
1: yeah i had to do that for a little while and i used one of the other big services to do it and they forgot to file the state workers comp stuff and i had to i was threatened by new york state to have to pay fifteen thousand dollars a day uh until it was resolved and i (laughs) I was able to negotiate that down and only pay a few thousand bucks but man yeah you you want a company that does that right and i can tell you the big guys don't always so i would definitely give just works a shot
0: yeah Really good. Um, I would definitely do it. I'd say anything I I it, it's always worth reevaluating in your life. Any t- anything that is a pain in your ass, you should look and see if there's a way that you can pay someone to do it for you.
1: Yeah, that's a really good rule in general.
0: And, and it's it is it it's the best part of the internet era of modern society is that an entirely new realm of things can be automated that just wasn't feasible before right like you know uh, you know it's a silly example but like those uh the buttons that Amazon gives you out now so like when you run out of detergent you can just hit a button and and have detergent sent to your house those are so bizarre but there's no way that could happen before the internet right there's <laughs> no way before the internet that that y- that you could just easily set up a thing that would do the payroll and HR for your company, like it just wasn't feasible. How how would you interact with them? You need the internet and a website. You need some way of interacting with them. You know, like the Sears catalog existed, so you could order stuff to get shipped to your house before the internet. But you can't have like a a print based interaction with the company that's handling your HR. You know,
1: I think so, you'd have to use a fax machine, <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe a, oh, an LP God. player.
0: You know I think right now I might be this might be a good thing to keep track of is how long I've gone without being asked to either send or receive a fax and i think <laughs> I think if I had been doing that, you know like this many days since an accident at the plant I think <laughs> yeah. I think that right now, knock on wood, I might be in the longest stretch of not having been asked to do a fax in my life. I wait think, till
1: you buy a house.
0: Oh, are you serious?
1: Oh yeah, that's gonna break your stretch. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're if you're gonna buy a house anytime soon, I, I I'm pretty sure they still. I mean, these days you can usually somebody who asks you to fax something, you can usually say, "Can I scan it and email it to you instead?" And usually they will say yes. Huh. But uh, but not always. <laughs> There's, and, and you know, the, the the percentage of time you can do that is going up. Thank God. But uh, the worst we're not part, there
0: yet. I I don't have a working scanner in the house, or I I do. I shouldn't say I don't have a working scanner. I've got a Doxy. Um, but I I don't know you got to go
1: snip you got to go scan snap. Uh, I don't
0: I don't have I don't know where it is. And Amy, <laughs> I've mentioned this before. Amy recently d- gave me a wonderful gift. She cleaned up my office. Um, and my office is a mess. I mean, it's like a serious Andy Rooney situation. But I do have. It's not a system. I'm not, and I'm not even saying it's a good idea. But I generally, I, you know, if I go a long time without cleaning up my office, I have a vague idea of in which pile on which shelf something is um she cleaned it all up and and you know it's all organized and stuff but i don't know where that is so usually when i have to scan something i don't i don't know where an actual scanner is um and so i just take a picture with my phone (laughs) i like i'll ask them i'll say can i scan it and email it to you and they'll say yes and i'll just take a picture with my phone and then crop out the table <laughs> and just send them that, and I've never once heard anything, you know. I well, just... there,
1: and there are also there are lots of apps that will do a fancier job of that. Like they'll use, they'll still use the phone camera, but they'll be able to like detect where the page is and then like skew it so it's properly, you know, lined up yeah. and everything. I don't even. Um, I know that. Smile makes one. I think it's PDF Scan Plus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, they make one. There's there's a bunch of these on the App Store, but I, I, I have theirs. I'm pretty sure. I I I honestly never use it because I have I have a, a Scan Snap, which is awesome, but. Hmm. Uh, but a lot of people use those apps on the phone, and they're fine. And it, it, you know, for your scanning volume, it's, which sounds like it's very low. Uh, that's probably fine. It is extremely low, very very low on the scanning volume. Um,
0: anything else you want to say about peace? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm glad it's over. I mean, gonna, it really does seem like it's over now. Like, I I really, you know, I'm still getting like the uh, the various like um, inquiries from media people. Um, I got a good one earlier. Let me. <laughs> this is uh, a guy on Twitter asked me earlier. Any chance you can join us for a webinar on ad blockers for the ad industry this coming Tuesday? I can DM you more details. So, <laughs> I can't imagine a tweet that was less well crafted to get my response than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. I'm I so I'm still getting a lot of these like media requests from people who want me to go speak at their webinars to the ad industry uh, about ads but for the most part everything else has died down and it is I'm just so relieved. And so now I'm back to working on Overcast which is so much better. <laughs> like as I said like it's probably not going to make anywhere near the right, the amount of money that Peace did but I don't care because it I would I'm so much happier working on it. It's no contest.
0: I, I thought that you really, it seemed on your show, and this wasn't even talking to you, but it just seemed listening to ATP that it really hit you hard personally. Like, it, you the, the thing that seemed to me to most upset you was the idea that that this thing that you built in two weeks, and I think you're probably right. I mean, maybe on and off, you've been thinking about it all summer, but a, a, a really, really low level of effort relative to everything else uh, was going to significantly outgrows uh the app that you've been working on for years and thinking about for even longer uh and that you want to keep working on for years to come and that that seemed to really get to you
1: yeah i mean and you know like it, it is really it is impossible to to uh understate how little code there is in peace like People who asked me, like a bunch of people, in a bunch of the of the angry responses were along the lines of the only responsible thing for you to do is to open source it since you abandoned it. And first of all, I can't because it has ghostery's data, which I I don't have the rights to. But uh, but the actual application code that is not just the database of sites is so tiny. It, there's almost no code there because Apple basically made this entire content blocking framework to be. Really efficiently designed to create ad blockers, <laughs> and, and so that's why I assumed from the beginning. I assumed I I assumed that mine wouldn't get significant traction because I assumed there would be tons of them out, right on day one, and and there were a handful, but not nearly as many as I expected. Um, but yeah, that, but that did you know? Like the reality was that the the iOS ad blocker business is not a technical challenge at all. Um, it is. I mean, I suppose if you've never made an app before, it's as challenging as making any other kind of app. But if you are, if you are a, an experienced app developer, you can crap out a content blocker in a week or less. It, it, you can do it in a couple of days. I mean, it, it is so easy to do. Yeah. And it is therefore not intellectually stimulating. It's not satisfying really beyond you know the first couple of days. Uh, then it's just grunt work, and it's just keeping up the database, which is really boring and which is not programming. And it's not intellectually um, valuable, um, so it, it is it, it is not stimulating if you desire that kind of intellectual satisfaction. So, um, whereas Overcast is full of really satisfying complex technical problems that require my brain to be really working at its best to solve properly, and that is incredibly satisfying to me. And uh, I and I would I would much rather work on that. Do you have the number? Do you know how many ATP listeners listen to via Overcast? Um I don't it I don't have a it's it's something like sixty percent. It's it's in the, it's in that ballpark.
0: Yeah, I think it's very close to that for me, because I do get those numbers from SoundCloud where I host um the audio. Uh let me see how I I always forget how to hell to click around and get it though. Oh yeah, Overcast number one. Um yeah, even more and second place is um uh, Apple Core Media iPhone, which I 99% sure translates to the built-in podcast app.
1: Yeah, it's also it also includes like anything with AV player, so like if you if you if you're playing a, a web page embed right. um or certain podcast apps actually report themselves as that, um just because they don't change it or they can't reach that that part of the API with the level they're playing at. Um so there some will be included in there. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, for me it's a little. It's a, right around fifty percent, so it's not quite sixty percent. But no, no surprise that um, uh, that it's more like sixty for you since you wrote the thing. <laughs> but uh, it I just, oh,
1: just double checked. It's actually I'm about fifty. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, right around fifty. Forty nine point nine two on uh, three episodes ago because I figured that like you know that gives people enough time to actually download it. Um, so yeah, I'm up there. Um.
0: Actually, let me change it to a month and see if that changes anything yeah actually it's even more actually if i look bigger it's actually more yeah it's because i haven't had an episode in the last seven days so if you count the whole month which gets to all the people who listen right away and you know i think i think it undersamples the people of the last seven days because the biggest fans of the show listen when they're new and so in the last seven days there haven't been any so really really overwhelmingly number one for for my listeners And if anybody out there has been curious about it, I really do recommend it. Not just because Marco's on the show today, but it's my favorite app for listening to podcasts.
1: I'm really good at promotion. So here I am talking about the app that I just pulled off the store for two hours. (laughs) Yeah. And meanwhile, (laughs) I'm going to ship Overcast 2.0 like pretty soon. (laughs) And I'm not going to be right back on to talk about that in like three weeks or whatever. No so, I'm really not good at this
0: promotion yeah thing. you're not good at it at all uh, the big new feature <laughs> in overcast 2.0 is the streaming engine yeah which is uh, in addition to just letting you listen to stuff right away instead of download the whole episode um it it's really more of like a just play. Just it's like a just play interface. So whether you care about stream, if you think you care about streaming podcasts or not, if you've ever been frustrated because you want to just start playing something but you, your phone's been asleep or whatever and it didn't download in the background or it just you just got the alert that the new episode of Hello Internet is out and you want to listen to it right away, it just means that you hit the play button and it'll just start playing.
1: That's I mean, so many people like when I when I was talking, you know, a year ago about how streaming was going to be a big deal, and I, I didn't even include it in 1.0 because I knew that not everybody would need it. I heard from so many people who said, please don't work on that. Please do other things because I don't care about streaming. And granted, I heard from way more people who said, I won't use this until it has streaming, uh, which was you know, uh, the more common uh, emotion by far. But a lot of people just keep saying, I don't need it. I will never use it. But the reality is, It is really nice to have for those times when, you know, what you said, an episode just came out or just came in, you just got, you just synced it and you want to start listening to it right now. And podcasts can be, you know, 50, 100 megs and not every CDN is fast and not every connection that you might have is fast. And so a lot of times, you know, if if you have to wait for the whole podcast to download, you know, it might take 10, 20 seconds or it might take five or 10 minutes no matter what it takes it feels like an eternity as you're sitting there watching this stupid download thing 1% 2% and you're like oh my god i just want to listen to it now and so like streaming really makes everything a little bit better and it 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 enables a bunch of other little stuff like it enables me to Although I haven't done this yet, uh, to put the, put a play button on the notifications for new episodes that so you can just start playing them immediately, like stuff like that. Just like th- there's so many new little things that it makes possible, and so many old things that it makes better. Because right now with streaming, now you can just, as long as you are connected somehow, you can tap on any episode in any list, whether you have it or not, and it start it just starts playing.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those things where it, again the absolutist position it just doesn't work in software design. Or if you wanna say, nope, no settings whatsoever, the app, I'm gonna make all the choices for the user and do them right way. Or you could say, everything should be configurable and, and the user should be able to configure everything. Well, both of those extremes are absurd. And if you think you're sticking to them, you're fooling yourself. The right way to think about it is, you do have kind of have to pick which side of the 50 yard line you're gonna be on though. Are you gonna make the sort of app where you're going to default To not offering options and configurability uh, and maybe you know you'll wind up not having enough options or are you going to default to saying yes to most things and having uh, options for things and you know you're going to wind up with a complex number of settings and and you know one way or the other you're going to you're going to disappoint some users. Um, I clearly... You, Marco Arment, err on the side of not offering too many options in the stuff that you build. I mean, and, and Peace was a canonical example of that. Um, but you have to. You've talked about this on ATP. There have to be some settings for streaming because it's different people have it like around the world, even maybe even within the country, even just in the United States, have incredibly different situations with and tolerance levels for uh, data charges. Right, there's people who are living in countries where you, you know, their their online database, you know, their online data is still measured in megabytes, not gigabytes. Or people who are traveling internationally and are on an international data plan, and you're measured in megabytes, not gigabytes. What well, you know, if you're on a 25 megabyte data plan, you cannot download an episode of the talk show over cellular. Unless you want to pay over its charges. But then there's plenty of other people who have unlimited data or virtually unlimited data, you know, with, you know, 15 or 20 gigabytes a month and 150 megabyte podcast is no big deal. And they want to download it there. So there have to be settings.
1: I mean, the funny thing is, like going back to our earlier conversation, I, I really sweat a lot of the details around this stuff to try to minimize data transfer. Meanwhile, you view a couple of web pages on a big site. And that's as much as a podcast episode. It is. It's some the the fact
0: that people are measuring these things now. I've always known that things are big, and that some sites are obviously serving too much, you know, data or or a ridiculous amount compared to the what you know something. If it's an article I just want to read, it should not be measured in megabytes. Right. Um, But now that people are actually measuring it while they test these content blockers, it is like holy crap! No wonder when I'm was in Ireland for all that I mowed through my hundred megabyte data plan uh, while I thought I was being, uh, you know, conservative with how much I used my phone. Uh, I thought that, you know, Hey, I'm just, I'll just read a couple of articles on tech meme and see if there's anything new going on. Well, no wonder I ate through a hundred megabytes. It's like one page on the verge loads seven megabytes.
1: Right. Yeah. Like you see all these, all these net reports now, like pages, pages, seven megs, nine megs, 30 megs on the Boston.com was that is like some create. And it's like a podcast episode is like 30 to 50 megs. Usually <laughs> These are not like, like that's, that's eight, 10 web pages. Maybe like it's not, that's really scary. It's really scary. And really sad. Um, but anyway, yeah. So with streaming, I, yeah, I've done a lot. I've actually offered, I'm offering very few options uh, on, on 2.0 and we'll see how that plays out. You know, you're right. Like, you know, you can't, you know, the absolute positions never work. There's always going to be uh, realities and also market pressures that set in that, you know. So I'm trying to have as few settings as possible to still make it good. Um, but, of course, everyone's trying that. And everyone, again, draws that line in different places.
0: Yeah. I think the biggest thing is to try to avoid surprise.
1: Right. right. Yeah, like, my, like my theory, like right now, the way it works right now, it's probably the way it's going to ship, is if you choose to stream something, it will always allow it to use cellular in that case. And the rationale there is that well that's how everything else works you know if you load a web page it doesn't ask it doesn't say waiting for Wi Fi you know it just if you click on a link to load a web page it just loads it via whatever connection it has available and if you want to restrict apps uh, to not use cellular you can do that globally in settings you can say per app you can go to Overcast in the system settings app and you can say just never allow this app to use any cellular data like that's a switch right there you can do it and a lot of people do um, and so all I have to do is. I don't have to cover the case of people who want the app to use no cell data because the system covers that. I have to cover the case of people who want to use it sometimes and or or want to use it always and so the way everything else works, web pages um more importantly stuff like youtube like if you like you know YouTube is obviously massive, that is the entire internet to. Uh, people like your son and lots of other people in the world like that's that's a big deal um you know youtube if you are on cellular data and you launch a youtube thing and go view a, a youtube video it just plays it it streams it and it plays it over cell data and it's fine if you go play a song these days you're probably playing it off cell data you know most the how right. many people are listening to songs like so the idea of like having to like prompt the user or make a lot of granular settings for when to use cell data, I think is outdated. Um, and, and so now I think I can get away with the current options that I have, which is um, literally it just, it always allows cell data on streaming because you initiated that like you, the user said, play this now. And so uh, in my opinion, then you don't have to ask, are you sure you want to play it over cell data? Cause you're currently on the cell network. No, these days, you know, what year is this? You play it now. Um, and then, the only option I have is whether automatic background downloads should use cellular, and it's default to off. So, so the automatic background downloads will default to Wi-Fi only, um, because in that case, it's like, well, you didn't initiate this. This came in outside of your control. You know, it could have come in the middle of the night when you were asleep, um, and your iPad downloaded an entire episode of Mad Men and burned through your whole Verizon cap. You know, that that could have happened. So, you know. Uh, that that is a preference to me that is like okay do do you have so much data that you always want this the the uh, app to use as much of it as it needs to or do you want to basically use it on demand
0: yeah that seems about right that seems right let the automatic stuff stay on wi-fi and let the user initiated stuff play
1: yeah and however you know you're
0: never going to win somebody's going to complain but uh I think in general, it's actually your logic is completely correct. That if the user hits play and they have a working network connection, they mean play,
1: right? Because that, because that's how you know podcast apps historically have not worked that way. Always like they've offered more granular control. But I'm not see. I'm not looking at what other podcast apps are doing to solve this problem. I'm looking at what other apps are doing, not podcast, like just what what people expect based on the reality of other apps that exist in the universe today, and. What that is these days is a lot of streaming media, and it and it just uses cellular when it needs to, and it doesn't ask you.
0: Yeah, I think part of it too is that things have changed so quickly in so few years, and that streaming in general has just become uh, it's a huge phenomenon. But podcasting started back; I mean, the name even says you know it's the iPod. You know, that's the pod podcasting from a time when you downloaded stuff first and then synced it over over USB. And that it was a big deal, and they podcast episodes were things you had to wait for while they downloaded because they were big. Whereas you know it's they're not that big anymore, and you know most people a lot an awful lot of people have cellular network connections that handle it easily because they can handle video. If they can handle video, you can handle audio easily.
1: Exactly, you know. So and you know, there was there's also like there's other implementation details that that were tricky problems. Like one of them is if you're on cellular, how much should the streamer read ahead of the file like should it should it just keep downloading until it has the whole thing or should it only buffer ahead like 5 minutes worth at a time you know and and so on and the decision i came to on that is it should just download as much as it can whenever it feels like it um, you know so so it, if you if you start an episode playing over cellular uh, uh, you know in streaming it will download as much as it can until the connection drops or until it finishes the file Uh, that's it because any other solution that that i thought of and tried would fail in other ways like it would it would be inconvenient or annoying or it wouldn't be what i wanted in other situations and the fact is an entire podcast episode you know most people who listen to podcasts aren't listening to shows like this that are two hours long most people are listening to stuff like you know public radio shows that are maybe 20 30 minutes uh, and so those are like 15 megs, 20 megs. Like they, they, they are really small files. And again, that's like two Verge articles. So, right. so it's no big deal to buffer ahead. Whereas it is a big deal if somebody is driving on a long highway trip and they're counting on streaming to play their, their podcast for them and they lose reception for a few minutes cause they're in the middle of the mountains and the show that they were downloading just drops because right. it didn't buffer ahead enough and it could have it had the connection back there it could have it could have downloaded the whole show had plenty of time to download it and then just didn't you know so there's situations like that or or you know if more commonly like if you're on a metro system that's underground and stuff like that like, so it's it was just better again another another decision that if i was making that decision 5 years ago 10 years ago i would have probably made it differently but you know now uh this is this is the era where things stream And it's not a big deal. And if you need to really restrict the amount of data that you use, you have to consciously download media for offline use and then like, you know, and and avoid actively streaming things or go into the system settings app and turn off cellular for all these apps.
0: I I think you're on the right track. I think it's going to be a big hit. Uh, Let me take one last break here and hit the money button once again and thank our, our fourth and final sponsor, longtime friends of the show. Longtime friends of ATP as well. Igloo. Oh yeah. Ig- Igloo software.com uh slash the talk show or slash what's what do you know what your code is offhand? I believe that one's just ATP. ATP. You could probably figure it out. Uh Igloo is the intranet, intranet that you'll actually like. I love that slogan. Uh, that lets you share news organize your files coordinate calendars manage projects set up a little micro blog think of that as like a little internal like a private twitter imagine if you had like a little twitter for your team that you could use just for internal stuff that can't go public can't be shared publicly uh igloo has that sort of feature built right in their latest upgrade they call it viking i guess it's like a code name um the big push they had this summer for Viking was all around documents and how you and your team interact with them, gather feedback, make changes, uh, in a lot of businesses, good old fashioned documents, real files that you have to share with each other, not just things that live online as URLs, but real files, still big part of the business, uh, big part of the real world. So they've really, really upped their game on that sort of stuff. And they've added, um, the equivalent of read receipts in email, so you know when somebody's seen it now it doesn't go on by default you turn it's just like a read receipt and email don't ask for it unless you need it but you turn it on and if it's an important thing some kind of thing that you have to get sign offs on put that on share it then you can see that everybody who needs to see it has seen it uh really really important for certain legal agreements and in certain cases if you don't need it you don't have to worry about it but if you do need it igloo is uh can be part of your game now when it couldn't before big big part of their push um if your company has a legacy intranet that looks like it was built in the 90s, that's because it probably was. <laughs> it's very, very true. You should give Igloo a try. Here's the thing that's the most amazing about Igloo. I, I keep waiting for this to end, and it hasn't ended, is if for up to 10 users, you can use Igloo for free. You just use it. So if you're on a really small team, or if you have a really small company that's under 10 employees, Igloo is just free. It's free not for a month, it's just free. Um, If you have more than 10 people, you can try it out right now for free at igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. Try it out for free with up to 10 of your colleagues just to see that it works. Get it set up. Configure it the way you want it to work. Test it out. And until you're satisfied with it, you don't have to pay for anything. And then when you are satisfied, you go and they have very, very low prices for per user over 10. Um, But that's the way they work. Free for up to 10. Over ten, you pay a very very reasonable very competitive number uh of dollars per user uh, so go check them out long time friends of the show people keep writing to me. I get a lot of email from people saying uh, they signed up for igloo very very happy with it. Good software. Those guys know how to spend their ad money you know they started when they started years ago they they got a uh, sandwich to make videos for them
1: yeah they were they were really they've been progressive right from the start yeah. They did like a TV commercials with the
0: Sandwich. Good stuff. Uh, we don't have much time. We've been going on forever. We always go long. I we haven't gone on too terribly long, but we don't have a lot of time left. Um, I guess we can just briefly. It's
1: been like two and a half hours.
0: <laughs> briefly talk about uh, the the new iPhone because now you've got one. I yeah, assume? we got two in
1: the house now. Yeah, um, me and Tiff, we both got them. So, what did you guys get? Success. Uh, uh, she got gold. I got black. You know, usual.
0: And no, no pluses.
1: No, and we went sixteen gigs for you. <laughs> you did not. No.
0: <laughs> I think you guys have been more more critical of the sixteen gig than than I have. You're you're you are more convinced that it's an upsell product market or uh, was it? Would you call it marketing? I don't know. But that it's it's. It's not that they want to make higher margins on the 16-gigabyte phones. It's that they want to make higher margins because there's enough people out there who would... If, if, they, if the bottom line was 32 instead of 16, they would buy that 32. But they know that 16 isn't enough, so they just bite the bullet and buy 64. And that's an entire $100, extra $100 in revenue and probably close to $100 in, you know, in margin
1: Correct. I mean, you know, you can look at something as, you know, well, there's, there's lots of justifications for this, you can look at it, you know, there's, there's reasons like, you know, like, when, like when Phil Schiller was on here, and he explained, uh, you know, a lot of justifications for why this works. Uh, there's also, you know, I heard from a lot of people when I we were talking about this, I heard from people who were saying, well, you know, this is for we buy these for business, we buy, you know, thousands of these for our employees or whatever, and we don't need them to have more space. Uh, which I think is a terrible argument, and you can you know you can apply that same thing well, like do they need cameras, do they need like a headphone jack like you know <laughs> you can you can apply that to lots of things um so there's a lot of bad justifications for it, but I think separating justifications from reasons is important, and I think the main reason for it is you're right it is not. It is not necessarily to, to make the extra couple of dollars of margin on the sixteen gig model. It's that they are selling so many more of the sixty-fours that it is most likely having a significant boost on the average selling price. And when you're talking about the most profitable product of the most profitable company, like a a significant boost to the average selling price of their best selling product is massively important. Like that is a big deal to them, and they don't always do what's a hundred percent best for the customer. It's always a balancing act, you know. It's, it's you know they 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 will they're happy to charge forty five dollars for a you know a leather case that they could sell for a lot less. You know stuff like that. Like you know they they're not totally. A charity here, like they're doing stuff as a balance between satisfaction and profit. And I think this is one of those things where, in my opinion, they've chosen wrong. I, I think they have not balanced this correctly in this case. um that I, I think the the long term costs to satisfaction and to the the load it places on support on the genius bar. Um, the the problems people face with their full phones and trying to manage storage themselves, uh, you know, I, I think all of these things are are a poor balance of uh, of utility versus uh, versus profit. Uh, and I would say the same thing about you know other things like the um, the iCloud storage tier pricing. You know, it just got better, but it's still not great. Like I, you know, there's there's problems. There's you can point to all sorts of things like this with Apple, and most of the stuff they do is a pretty good value. Uh But but there's there's these little edges like this where you can just kind of tell, oh yeah, this is they just did this because this would be a massive difference in profit.
0: Yeah, and I I it's weird. I I can't help it. I, I think it has to change next year. Although who knows? You know what I mean? Like I I, I keep thinking, well, next year when I go to the seven, they'll have to up the minimum to the thirty-two. And the OS isn't going to get bigger. So it'll just mean that there's a lot more free space for everybody. Um, And then I think to myself, uh, I don't know if I'd want to bet on that. Because maybe, you know, they've had... The thing that I keep thinking about is if they did it again going from the 6 to the 6S with the exact same split. And they changed so much other stuff. They changed the actual... Aluminum alloy, they make the things out of. So it's not like they're afraid to change stuff in in right. the S. It also
1: seems like they changed the flash. Everyone's saying it's much faster.
0: Yeah, and and whether that's because it's the component or it's at least the, um, uh, like, was it ours Technica? I think that had the specs and wrote some code. It's the 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 storage controller is new, um, um and is now more like. Uh, you know, it's effectively like a MacBook storage controller. So it's it's a serious upgrade. It is, in addition to like the CPU and GPU benchmarks being equivalent to the the, the MacBook One, um, it, it really seems like they've upped their storage performance and the way they treat storage to to laptop, you know, MacBook quality engineering, which is, again, it's a crazy big change. This whole notion that the S1s are just minor revisions, it's really, really crazy. Um, I think if anything, in my review, I think I undersold this, this new theory I have, which is that it takes Johnny Ives team two years. I think I've got this boiled down to a good nut that it takes them two years to come up with it. What they think is a superior design as in, this is what it looks like. This is the basic gist of the, you know, it's going to have this, these size screens with this pixel resolution. And there's going to be a button down here that you, that that'll be a, uh, fingernail you know a fingerprint sensor Uh, these are the buttons these are the sizes Uh, and then it you know somebody you know the engineering teams have to decide well how do we make this and because it takes two years for these new designs to come out and because two years is a good pace for them for new designs any for for product marketing reasons anyway it means that the engineering teams get two cracks at it they get the first crack which is how can we make this you know to hit this ship date and you know, and then they get a second, an entire year after that to, okay, how can we do it? How can we make that design even better? And in terms of, you know, they rethink everything. Every single thing you touch on this iPhone is a different material than, than last year's. I mean, maybe the rubber gaskets that cover the antennas are the, are the same material, but it's a new aluminum and it's an, a new glass. So if they wanted to change the minimum to 32, they could have done it. And I just keep thinking about the fact that if, if the, customer satisfaction downsides to the 16 gig minimum, whereas significant enough to to worry them, they would have changed it. That they could have seen those numbers last year early on and known that we've got, you know, that's, that's a thing that I think that they could have changed, say, between last December and this September. And I think a lot of it is locked down a year in advance, but they could have changed the minimum.
1: I I do worry a little bit, you know, we've seen, I think, I think in the Tim Cook era of Apple, I think it's safe to say, based on our observations from the outside, and some other statements, I think it's probably safe to assume that they are more data-driven than they used to be. Like, with Steve, it was, like, you know, it, it was very much still based on Steve's intuitions. Yeah. To a lot of degree, right? And, and... You know, Tim is very much is much more data driven, and so th- that's showing in the rest of the company. And I worry. One of the things that came up um, from various Apple people uh, that that I spoke with, uh, or that I heard from, one of the things that came up during the um, the functional high ground thing is that about half of Apple was like, "Oh my god, thank you for finally saying this." I've been trying to convince higher ups for years that we need to slow down and fix things. Um, and and the other part I heard was that a lot of this was catching. Higher ups by surprise. Yeah, that I, that they thought they were doing better than what I thought, and what a lot of other people thought. And and there, this is very much a metrics-driven company. Now. I would go
0: even further than that. And I, I I've what I heard wasn't just that that side of the company thought they were doing better than what you and others were. And the, yeah, I hear you. That's right. They they honestly and truly believed believed and maybe still continue to believe that they're doing better on software quality than ever before in the company's history. Not just that they were doing okay, that they were doing better than ever.
1: Right. And so my concern is is twofold. First of all, the fact that, that there's a massive disconnect of opinion there, regardless of which side is right, that shows a problem somewhere on the line, and that, that should be considered. But um, my my main concern is that we we can see definitely that they are way more metrics driven and numbers driven than they have been before. Um, that you know that is the new culture uh, of Apple. You know, in the Tim Cook era, that's and and the the, the Tim Cook era has brought a lot of positives. Um, and this is one that I think is is certainly positive in some areas, but it also has risks that they have to look out for. And I'm not sure they found the right balance yet. One of the biggest risks is you got to make sure you're measuring the right numbers, you know, and and you know whatever metrics you are collecting is that the whole picture. And also, whatever metrics you're collecting will, first of all, they will be gamed. By internal people within the company, like internal right. departments, will game the metrics because they have to, because that's the pressure that is put on them. And when they have to start making decisions about difficult things to cut or to put off or to whatever, you know, they know what metrics they're judged on. And so people will game the metrics.
0: That's it's the way that, you know, and I know you're not a big sports fan, but it's the reason that every single team sport with a ball has what seems to be from an outsider a, a, a complex set of rules like the more you learn about baseball the more you think these rules are crazy but it's all about the fact that if the game is about you know how many people cross home plate and touch home plate that if these rules weren't in place people teams would do whatever they could within the rules that are in place to game the game right everything gets gamed
1: you're, you're exactly, exactly right and, it, and you, you know this that, is-
0: ties into the advertising discussion we had uh, four hours ago. <laughs> right.
1: So, so I do worry that if Apple is, is putting all this emphasis internally on metrics, I wonder what they're missing and because we, we've seen already you know, with, the, with the high ground thing, we've seen that there are things they're missing and that yeah. they need to be shown that sometimes from the outside. And, and part of the reason why I complain so much about certain things Apple does is because I know that, that outside voices like ours can affect things internally. Yeah uh usually whatever we are arguing about outside somebody inside is arguing about too I and think if there's outside support for one viewpoint or the other we can you know we can be giving ammunition to the side that we want to win the fight
0: yeah i think that the whole discovery d thing was a perfect example of um the type of thing that slipped through their metrics. I mean, one of the things I know that they specifically were thinking about were crash reports and that there's this whole opt-in system that Apple, I think, is very, very upfront about. And in fact, there may even be too upfront about it because when you upgrade your OS on systems, you have to always re-opt into these things. They they might yeah. even ask, they might, they might even err on the side of asking too many times, you know, are you sure you want to let us have location services enabled on this device? Even if you've said it already, you've just upgraded to a major new version of the OS they're going to ask you again um so they they know that uh, most of an overwhelming majority of users on the mac uh, or uh, mac and ios opt into the will you send us you know the crash reports and and stuff like that for helping us make things better um uh, and that's one of the things that they've measured and one of the things that they know has gone way down in recent years is apps crashing i anecdotally that feels true to me it, as well, that on my Mac, fewer and fewer apps crash in terms of just disappearing and getting the, um, and and especially if I, and and again, I'm not measuring statistics. I'm thinking about just in my mind, almost all the crashes I see nowadays on my Mac are from beta software that I'm testing and that I expect to crash. Um, it feels to me like apps crash less, especially Apple's apps. Um,
1: yeah, I'd say you're right. And the
0: whole Discovery D thing, all of the various problems that people have seen from it are the type of things that there aren't crashes. They're just exactly. these weird silent failures. You know, like when the printer that I've been using for the last four years, and and it's the only printer I use, and I hit Command-P and nothing ever comes out of it, and I go over to the thing with a red badge in my dock, and it just says printer cannot be found, and I go to this thing and the, the system settings and try to configure the printer and I can't configure it and I just sit here and I see if Amy can print and she can print but I can't. It doesn't even see the printer and then I just turn the printer off and on and back on again and now it all just works but (laughs) I haven't updated anything on my printer. That's for damn sure. The printer hasn't changed at all. Uh, That never gets reported to Apple. That never, you know, there is no crash log that gets sent. There is no I, you know, Siri heard john cursing in his office about the fucking (laughs) printer uh that never it doesn't register right it's the sort of thing that you just kind of have to you kind of have to play by feel and internally you have to be like hey guys this is a shit show this my apple tv is keeps calling itself apple tv parentheses 13 (laughs)
1: <laughs> right and that and playing it by feel that as we all know that was one of steve's greatest strengths that he was re- like he was really on point point. and yeah he wasn't always perfect but his track record was pretty good uh in playing it by feel and and so you know when when you move to this metric system you have to both a make you know you, you have to be on the lookout for gaming and try to reduce it or eliminate the incentives for it um we whenever possible and that's that's an ongoing constant Constant battle, um, and B, you have to really make you have to look at like what do the metrics not include? What what where are the blind spots of these metric of these metrics? And every set of metrics is going to have massive blind spots, right? And and that is where I think there is still room for improvement there. And so if Apple is measuring their their beloved customer sat um, in in ways that that show that sixteen gig is is not a problem for most of the people who have it. I mean, you know, they have a they have way more data than we do, so right. they could be right. That could be true. Most of the things Apple says are, you know, on our surface level, on the face of it, true. Like they, you know, they're you know, like like my blog post, like there was no deeper meaning. Like most of the things, as you always say, most of the things Apple says are pretty straightforward and true. Uh, but this is one of those cases where if they keep saying that 16 gig is fine and that people are happy enough with it, um, that. Is in really stark um, contrast and disagreement to what I and everyone I know sees anecdotally from our friends and relatives who have 16 gig phones, yeah. and and like I love like when underscore David Smith put posted his analysis of like free space. I have that on right in front and of me right now. Yep, yeah, that was that was great because that shows like actual broad data set from people who aren't all nerds who have you know like how much free space they actually have and how many and you know we all everyone who has been around other people with iphones we've all known people who like oh they go to take a picture and their phone's full or they keep getting the message that their phone is full or their icloud storage is full and they have no idea what to do about that exactly and and you know ios storage management has never been particularly easy or or obvious and how to do it Um, you know there's all these all these problems people have, people who are stuck on old OSs, like they, I think they learned big time with how low the adoption rate was of iOS eight compared to previous releases, because they had all these eight and sixteen gig phones out there that didn't have enough space to install it, I, and they just never, people just never installed it.
0: I would, I would say actually, I think that the way that iOS deals with storage now, in terms of dealing with a low storage situation, is actually better than it's ever been, and better than anything on the Mac, and in terms because the Mac you're dealing with the Finder. And you've already lost most people. Like yeah, this, the fi- file system, you've lost them. And so the way that you can go into settings now, and if you at least Google enough, you you can probably get someone to tell you, you know, go to settings, go to general, go to usage, and it'll show you which apps are using how much data. And then you can do something right there and deal with it. That's actually pretty good. And I think it's about as good just blaming the whole app, you know, here this app is using four gigabytes, is about as good as it's gonna get from for mass market typical people. But you, most people aren't gonna get that far. Like I just linked to a thing before we started recording today that it, around the world, there's like five or 6% of, of Facebook users don't know that they're using the internet when they use Facebook. <laughs> that's great. That you go around and poll people and and they say, how many, do you use the internet? And you get, you know, it's 40%. And then do you use Facebook? And it's like 60%. Well, how is that, that's not really possible. They're obviously misinformed, but if if you're surprised that there are that many people who don't realize that Facebook is on the internet, you you really just don't understand how untechnical people are, you know. And it's just not, it does not doesn't even say that they're not intelligent. They just don't. They might be unintelligent, but it might just be that they are not technically inclined. And the it genius, also might
1: be the decreasing relevance of the web. Oh, I didn't say that.
0: Very possible, very possible, like that they and 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 combine that with the age old genius of Microsoft branding their browser internet Explorer, which made people think that that was the internet <laughs> yep. uh, um which was very purposeful, and again gets tied into like the whole Joe camel marketing angle, you know marketing is evil, you know from earlier in the show, um, that was very deliberate. And they know they're not using the thing that's the internet because they're not using the browser, and so therefore they're not using the internet. That's That's just the loose way people think about things. And it speaks to the genius of modern smartphones that they're able to do so much and share so much and be so engaged by not really understanding the underlying technology at all. But, you know, therefore, if you're surprised that people... Some number of people buy 16 gigabyte phones and have no idea that they're selling. You know, they're doing themselves a great disservice. It's it's not their fault. They that this is the bottom line. The thing that gets people upset, like you say, and people. I know there's people. There's people who are out there rage swearing at us, listening to the podcast, saying, "You know, my company buys 16 gigabyte phones and they're just fine because we." do blah, blah, blah. If Apple wants to sell them to the enterprise, fine. Sell them directly to the enterprise, but don't sell them in retail stores to consumers because like Underscore's data shows that somewhere around 37% of those people have at least his users of his app. But I think it's very, very possible that that's, let's call it one in three. So we'll even err on the, you know, Underscore says 37, we'll call it 33. 1% 1% of the people with 16 gigabytes iPhones have under one gigabyte of space available, which is really, really. And some of them have, you know, really low mounts under one gigabyte. But if you don't even have one gigabyte available, you're really in trouble
1: for a lot of little things. Yeah, like a lot of things just start failing for you at that
0: point. Right, like having the room to download a 150 megabyte podcast that you want to listen to or to record video, like the the thing that he showed that his wife got when she took out the camera, and she could not record video because there wasn't enough space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it really bites you. And then the other thing you look at in his stats is, so the next step up now is 64, and you look at how many people with 64 gigabyte phones have storage problems, and it's effectively none of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the, the sad thing is, you know, I've heard rumblings here and there from various tipsters, some of which have no credibility. Uh, but I've heard rumblings that they are finally going to fix this next year, and with the iPhone 7, it's going to start at either 32 or even 64. Right. Um, Just- I worry, though, like, <laughs> by the time, if they ever move up to 32, maybe that's going to be too small by that point. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, because, you know, the point of this, it, it's very much like when, when you're designing a an app with a paywall. And I have this in Overcast. You know, when you're designing an app with a paywall of some sort, whether it's a free trial with you know shareware style, unlock all features, whatever, um, the idea is to put that wall at at a threshold such that you're creating a a small pain point for people. So that they won't like frustratingly quit your app and say, well, this is useless. I can't even try it. But you have to create that pain that pain point at such a place where most people will reasonably run into it a few times, and a good percentage of those people will run into it enough that it, it pushes them, it motivates them into paying. And it, I use the term pain point here intentionally. Like it, it, this is like you're causing like inconvenience, or you're making people like hit a, hit a wall that's unpleasant that they want to go past. Because if you don't do that, if you are too generous. Uh, with what you give away for free, effectively nobody buys the upgrade. This is one of the things like apps that have um, ads by default, and you can pay to remove the ads. Historically, those have very, very low payment rates. Almost no, you know, effectively, almost nobody pays to remove ads. I always, most I, always are, I always, right, to Me ads. too. But we're weird, you know. Most people <laughs> are just like, well, okay, I'll take the ads. Like that isn't enough of a pain point. Um, or if you say like you know suppose suppose you know you're you're uh, you know, suppose with uh, overcast uh if i said well in order to subscribe to more than 3 3 podcasts you have to unlock the the pay thing um well most people subscribe to like two podcasts or one and a half podcasts or something like that on average so hardly anybody would even would even hit that and then i would create this horrible incentive for people right. not to try out new shows <laughs> right. so right. so like that, that, that's why i don't limit that you know i limit other things but i don't limit that um and and so you know, with Apple, you know, when they're pricing their products, when they're designing the the tiers of just deciding what what the storage tiers or whatever the the product lines, you know, where does the Mini run into the Air? Where does the Air now run into the Pro? Where, on the MacBooks, how do you you know where do the size boundaries lie, and what capabilities do you have to move up to get uh, at, each, at each stage? Like. All these things are designed to try to place those those barriers and those limits and, the, and those boundaries between classes or between price levels. Try to place them at, at a point where you're going to capture a lot more value from a lot of people who are going to hit those barriers and are going to want to push past them by paying you more money. That is the whole point. If they if if Apple did their job badly. They would give away too much for free at the low end, but Apple tries to do their job well, and they are very, very good at that most of the time. And so, so when app like these, these storage tiers are designed specifically to maximize that. You know, I, look at the iPad and the iPad Pro. I was just about thirty-two to say. and one twenty-eight, right? And right. then the one twenty-eight is cellular only, or it, no. cellular is only available on the one twenty-eight, right? Right, so like, so
0: there's only three available. You can right. for 7.99. I think it's 7.99. I'm looking at my notes. Here. Yeah, I think you're right. 7.99. You can get a 32 gigabyte, no cellular. For 9.49, you can get 128 gigs, no cellular. And then for 10.79, uh, their their usual 130 dollars upgrade for the cellular, you can get 128 and cellular. Those are the only three configurations available. I actually think that's great. I think it's great that it's a lot simpler that you don't have three storage tiers. It's just two. Do you want the real one? And let's face it. The real one is the 128. Do you want cellular or not? And the 32 totally makes sense in the context of industrial uses of the iPad Pro, like for the
1: Enterprise. and Like um, single app uses. uh,
0: Yeah. And like I was talking to Dr. Wave from Pixar, you know, and they they even publicized This is public information. It's not secret that Apple was there at Pixar last week and letting their artists play with them and use them and, and test the palm rejection, which they were very pleased with uh i i say very pleased they they called it like near perfect um but like i said to him i was like i'll bet that the 32 is the one you guys are gonna buy he goes oh yeah of course because they don't store anything on the on the thing it's all connected to their little internal internet and it's all stored on the servers and and so that they can share it and it's all there so you know the extra storage would be completely and utterly wasted on them and it's also the lack of cellular is uh a feature because they don't want these things connected to cellular networks they want them connected only to their little internal network like the I, di- I didn't even talk to him about this but i know in the movie industry in general that whole thing where sony got hacked has really really upped their game on security and places like hospitals and stuff like that with all the hipaa laws um you know this configuration is perfect for them it is not you know if you're a consumer though you want the 128 and you probably want the one with cellular yeah and i think it's very obvious and also the the low end model 32 is a great little low end thing where there's still plenty of space for things like software updates and temporary caches and big files and stuff like that whereas like a 16 gigabyte model on that would have been like it just would be terrible
1: yeah i mean like i like you know if i if i end up having to get one for various testing purposes i would get 32 because i wouldn't be like a power user of that so, right. like that feels like it's okay but just barely, like it, it does feel kind of weird to spend nine hundred or eight hundred dollars on this high end thing and then to not spend the extra 150 or whatever to quadruple the storage because this is the kind of thing that you can never change, you can never upgrade that storage any yeah. other way, or like it's you can't undo that decision. Um and and they know that when they're pricing it and when they're deciding these they know that and they know that a certain percentage of people usually a, a, I I would expect a pretty significant one uh will rationalize that same thought of well I'm already spending 800 if I go up to 950 I'll quadruple this thing that might be a problem for me in the future if I don't do it you know like that and same thing with adding Apple Care and everything else this is how retailers always work this is this is business um so all this is a very long way to say. I definitely still believe that the sixteen gig phones are a decision to raise average selling price not because it is best for customers yeah. um, and and that I don't necessarily even I'm not even that mad at them about it because you know that's just that's business thats something right. like, that's that's the kind of decision that they have to make to be successful yeah. and every business person does this and you know Apple is not you know Santa Claus like they you know they they're a business and and they're going to make money off of us and and we happily keep giving it to them and so they're obviously doing something right
0: the only the one and last thing I want point I want to make about this the other thing that that causes me to think about it a lot is that it's that it it, it the 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 repercussions of this last for at least 3 years because what it means is that next year the mid-tier phone is going to be a 16 gigabyte start at a 16 gigabyte iPhone 6S. And then two years from now, the free free with contract $99 phone is going to be the iPhone 6S with 16 gigabytes. So there's going to be brand new iPhones that some people are buying with 16 gigabytes for at least the next three years.
1: Oh yeah, I mean they they've been selling 8s at the low end. I I think right. are, I don't know if are they still now? I think that the, they were the, they were before last week. Yeah, before last <laughs> They're week. They're still selling the 5C the 5C had an 8 gig yeah.
0: version. Yeah. So, you know, it's the fact that the minimum when the iPhone 5C came out was 6 made it, you know, it made a difference.
1: Uh, the minimum now at least the minimum in the US is 16 now in the 5s. Yeah, they might sell 8 somewhere
0: around the world. But, you know, but that still means, though, that it's going to be 16, though, for a while. Exactly. Um, I thought I linked to it today and I don't want to repeat it. I just tell people to go if you, you know. Because you and I don't have, you know, this episode is pretty short. So if you still have a lot of time left for podcast listening, <laughs> go listen to, it's a great podcast in general, but I really thought it was a, a fantastic episode of Upgrade with Jason Snell and Mike Hurley. And they talked about upgrading to iOS 9 and or or getting a new phone. You buy a new iPhone, you have an old iPhone, you want to upgrade from your backup, What an enormous pain in the ass that really is. And if anything, it's gotten worse over the years because the phones do so much more and ask so much more permission. And some of the things I totally understand, I know it has to be that way. It's actually a feature that you have to redo your fingerprints. Uh, That's actually good, even though it's a little bit of a pain in the ass. Uh, you have to re-enter your credit cards. I realize that's actually a feature because the credit card data is stored on a secure element, and if it was a thing that they could just copy from one phone to another, that wouldn't be a very secure element. It's the fact that you—it literally cannot be copied from there to here. That's great. So some of those things are obviously uh, uh, it can't be avoided, but it takes so long, and you it, it, and and it's so indeterminate what you're waiting for. Like, did you run into? The, do you upgrade when you get a new phone? Do you upgrade from a backup?
1: Yeah, I do, I do the iTunes encrypted backup and everything. I, this time, I, I did it mostly seamlessly. Um, Tiff's phone came with a dead SIM card, so we had to swap the SIM on that one. And I had, a, I had the endless loop of uh, iCloud authentication dialogues during the setup process problem, which I've heard a couple people mention that they ran into as well. Um, yeah. But other than that, I, like, you know, I did the whole thing where I unpair the watch, then back up the phone, then restore to the new phone. Then repair the watch to the new phone, and all that. Like it, it went mostly okay. It's
0: I've gotten this down because, and again, this is not really a complaint. It's you know, it's it's great that I get these review units, and from to, I get them two weeks early, and I get to write about them before other people, and I get to spend more time with them. Um, but now that they do two new phones a year, five C, 5S, S, six and 6 Plus and six 6S and 6 Plus, I get two phones to test. So there's two phones that I have to go through this with. And then I always buy my own. I already have my own. I bought my own. I don't, you know, I, I pay for my own phone. I personally use iPhone every year. So that means like in a period of like three weeks, I do this with three phones every year. And then later in the fall, I generally wind up doing it with an iPad, too. So, And then I might, buy, I might buy my own iPad. I don't buy a new iPad every year, but I at least test one. So I i do this with like five or six devices every year. I'll bet there's people within Apple who do this more often because they're using test units of the hardware. So that people inside Apple have to know this. And I think that if you do it like I do more than once a year, um, you're... It, the inadequacies of this system are in your face, and I really and and now that they're selling a a program to upgrade every year, encouraging people to upgrade every year. I really hope that that somewhere within Apple, there's a, you know, this is a high priority. We really got to streamline this. One thing I, I was not so aware too, of, but I was I, not I aware. Think, I, okay. I'm sorry for the crosstalk, but I was not aware that if you do the iCloud backup, you still have to re-enter all your passwords.
1: Yeah, uh yeah, iCloud backup is not it 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 doesn't count as encrypted. Like they don't because they don't want to store your passwords in iCloud. Right. So the iCloud keychain, I I think is is gonna be their long term solution around that, which doesn't store the password. Like it, it always keeps it on one device, right? It doesn't actually that's why you have to like go to another device to approve it. Right. Um but no, so that that's probably their long term goal with that, but I think one thing that is that is very obvious here, first of all, is that, like, once again, like, sometimes sometimes stuff about the Apple Watch kind of seems like it was developed, like, on a spaceship away from Apple. Like, like it just kind of got handed to them when it was done. Like, there, there's certain things about it that are just, like, this is obviously, like, the, the rest of the company didn't see this or approve this before they got out, or, like, where did this come from, you know? So, there's certain things about it, and I think, obviously, uh, the way the Apple Watch deals with backing itself up to the iPhone and... And moving it to a different phone, it's very um, un-Apple-like, if I can use that generalization. Yeah. It, is, it is very much like this does not seem like it was well... You know, Apple's whole thing is like the integration, top to bottom. They make everything. They make the software. They make the hardware. They make the services. They make everything. The the way the Apple Watch pairs and backs up to a phone, or doesn't rather, um, is... It, it just seems like this like thing that was tacked on and... It was not thought of with you know with integration in mind with the whole stack in mind with with what happens with your phone upgrade in mind, um, and that seems like a massive oversight, and hopefully yeah. that's just because it's it was it's a one point oh and they'll get to it um, because it, it does seem really weird that like by default, your watch is not backing up to your phone ever it seems <laughs> no. does it does and it only you, do it when you unpair
0: it I think so, yeah, and if you so if you like wipe your old phone and while in the process of i i it's very easy to end up as a as an ideal apple customer meaning ideal from apple's perspective you're a big fan and when they when they release new things you just go out and buy them so you've already got an apple watch and you're buying a new iphone uh it's very very easy to wind up like like with a default factory installed watch again and like losing your activity data
1: yeah uh, and that's yeah. that's a major like that could like as as a slacker who like bar- barely holds together an exercise regime here like if i lost all my activity data that's a major demotivator to keep going
0: cuz it's the whole like, point like it's the the idea that i've got this streak going that yeah. is the motivator you know the, yeah the like, that, like
1: that should not be taken as lightly you know temporary data and yeah. with all of HellKit, this is about, like how how crazy is it that the watch a doesn't seem to back itself up at all and (laughs) b when it does back itself up it doesn't back up to icloud it backs up to just that local phone right that is crazy like they icloud has existed for a long time icloud backups have existed for a long time before the watch why doesn't the watch regularly at night when it's plugged in just like the phone back itself up to icloud
0: and you don't have like one of the benefits of the watch is that you just don't have much user created data. It's not even possible yeah. to have a lot of user created data that, you know. But the stuff that is there, the metrics, you know, the biometrics and stuff, like the fact that it's not and
1: and it's even just your settings and stuff. Like it's annoying to lose all that stuff.
0: If you understand how it works, it makes sense why you have to first unpair it with the old phone and then and, and then it makes sense why the unpair takes five minutes because that's when the backup takes place (laughs) right so why does it take five minutes to unpair your iphone well because that's when it backs up so that you can then restore it when you're done you're like oh well then that makes some sense doesn't make you say well that's a that's a clever design it just makes you say okay that's why it takes but if you don't know that why in the world would you ever unpair it first why wouldn't you think as an apple customer i mean i think it makes total customer common sense That you would just think, I bought a new iPhone, I already have an Apple Watch, I'm going to restore from a backup, and then uh, my new phone will be paired with my Apple Watch.
1: Yeah, or that that is what, like, you can totally see a bunch of people making that assumption totally reasonably.
0: Right. And then if it, like, popped up and said, you know, do you want to switch your Apple Watch? Your Apple Watch can only be paired with one iPhone at a time. Would you like to switch to this new iPhone? Yes, please. Okay. And then you would expect that to maybe spin for a couple of seconds, and then it would just work.
1: Yeah, that this whole process uh it's it, seem, it seems like it's very much a 1.0 process yeah. which is, it isn't unfortunately with with the rest of the phone. And the 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 sad part of this to me, that the the discouraging part of this to me is that most of this rests on the the parts of Apple's infrastructure that I think have the most problems usually. It's like the the store infrastructure um not even not not necessarily like all of iCloud but like the, the backup and purchases part of it, I think, is really unrelated, especially the purchase. I mean, this all goes back to the store. I hate the store. Um, this, like That whole infrastructure seems like it has frequent problems and frequent bugs, and, uh, and all of this seems to rest on that and iTunes, which, yay, right? So I, I actually don't have incredibly high hopes of this improving. It's also it's it's also just very complex, you know, like the way the way Apple designs things, as you said, like you know, with with the privacy in mind and with the security that they do, a lot of these things aren't possible to make significantly better, yeah. you know, like a lot of it, like you know, you you can't just transfer a Touch ID and your credit card data because it doesn't, you you actually can't do it with security and, uh, designs that they have, stuff like that. Like a lot of this stuff works in ways like that where the answer is just. Well, to make this better, we would have to become Google, and we're not going to do that. So it's just not going to get better.
0: Yeah, and like for example, like the one that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago. I know I saw it at least one of the times I was upgrading a phone the last few weeks. I know other people have seen it. Is this loop seeming loop of uh, requests for your iCloud password? Yeah, and you know, and and it it just seems like I it's so indeterminate was I entering it wrong? I often do enter it wrong because entering a password on that little keyboard and all you see are the bullets it's very easy to make a mistake. So a well, lot
1: of- I'm pretty sure I have it nailed down. I, I I've now seen this about 3 or 4 times in various restores and everything. And I've I'm done pretty it- sure it's related to two factor authentication because what it seems like it's doing is something is checking for your password uh, very early on in the activation while the white screen is still up, and it is before the two-factor authorization is, is requested properly in that screen. So mm, you're you're, you can type in the right credentials, and it's failing because it's lacking two-factor.
0: I think you're wrong, or at least there's a way to get into it without two-factor, because uh, I don't have two-factor on. because it's Oh, okay. Uh, I don't Maybe I should, but... Uh, Probably. Well, I don't, because it seems like two-factor is such a pain in the ass, and I don't want to go through it with all these iPhones I register every year but I I don't have it turned on I'm on my one Apple ID and I know that I've seen this loop where I think I must have entered the password wrong because it keeps asking me and then I do it very very carefully painstaking character at a time character at a time and it still does it and then I think well is it the same service is it like six different services are queued up to get my Apple ID and they can't share it because they're so siloed within the system or is it a bug? Is it should I keep entering it? That's the question that I think. Am I supposed to keep entering this, or am I just uh, uh, going in a circle here where it's never going to stop?
1: Oh, see, well, so see when I when I enter it in this loop, it actually then shows me a second dialogue saying authorization failed. Oh, see, so so you know, it's, it's actually telling different. me it is failing and then so I'll just keep hitting cancel, cancel, cancel on the next few of them and it it's like an infinite alert mm-hmm. box in JavaScript like it, you just can't you have to like hit cancel fast enough and then like between boxes you got to like hit the next stage of the of the screen to like go to the next screen and get past that. It's now, really terrible. What I what
0: I've seen is it doesn't even tell you that it failed. It just asks again as though it's asking for the first time, over and over and over again. And usually it helps to power down the phone and power it back on or My go to thing, which works for a lot of these things, is to sign out and sign back in, uh, which can be a huge pain in the ass because you lose, you know, then it's like, oh, you know, all your contacts are gone. You have to wait for them to resync down and stuff like that. Now
1: you're losing your photos, your music. Like now, now everything's tied in.
0: Right. But anyway, the whole process is
1: is not good. Um,
0: And I really think that they ought to improve that. And I worry, my big concern is that maybe at the executive level, they've got people who set their phones up for them and so they don't see it. And and then Maybe, they, yeah. they can hear the complaints, but it's one of those things where hearing that complaint, ah, come on, it took you half an hour to set up your phone, big deal. It's very different than if if they had to see it. I just can't help but feel that if you know Tim Cook or Phil Schiller or Johnny Ive went through what I've gone through with some of these new iPhones this year personally, that they would be like, This 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 needs a swift kick in the ass.
1: Yeah. Somebody throwing a phone in a fish tank. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh that's as good a place as any to end. We've gone on plenty long enough. Let me thank uh our sponsors. I often forget to do this in the end of the show, but I won't this time. Our sponsors this week, Fracture, the people who make the pictures, Igloo, the internet you'll actually like. uh Just Works. They're the 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 place where you can go to take care of your HR and payroll and stuff like that. And lastly, the Brawler Group. <sighs> Who make both an amazing utility for your Mac called Ubar and a a seven hundred and fifty dollar really nice custom designed sapphire glass analog automatic watch, which is really really worth looking at even if you're not going to buy it. So my thanks to them and Marco. I thank you tremendously. Always have to thank you for the time. Uh, you're very generous with it.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I, ha- I always have fun on this show, even for three hours.